A few weeks ago, we did a special episode on the Purge series, which is a several film series about hunting humans and all crime being legal. During the recording of this, we developed a taste for the most dangerous game and decided we wanted to do a bonus episode on similar titles. So we decided to renew our bromance with John Gallagher Jr. and take a look at the Belko experiment. And along with that, and since our last episode was our most political, we thought we'd take a look at The Hunt as well, which is the year's most controversial movie that nobody saw or cared about for more than five minutes. So anyway, welcome to a bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Pod, where we're going to play the most dangerous game with two movies that we may or may not have enjoyed after a series of movies that we absolutely loved. Welcome to the Scary Stuff Pod. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. We're here to talk about a couple of movies about a bunch of people killing another bunch of people. And uh, we have a full crew tonight, so we've got our usual hosts in Eric. What's the plan, Kaki Man? <laughs> we've got Nick. Hi, everybody. And with a return appearance after we enjoyed purging with him so much, we have Fred. Yay. Hey, thank you for uh, bringing me back on for some ammo cast tonight. I'm very excited to talk about the <laughs> works of Lynn manuel Miranda. Uh, oh, shit. This is scary stuff, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there's people that die in Hamilton. It yeah. was kind of scary, I guess. It had I mean, its moments. It's scary in that way all musicals are a little scary because you start to question things about yourself as you watch them. Like, why am I watching a musical? Am I enjoying <laughs> this? What does that say about me? Where did these tears come from? Uh, yeah, I didn't cry. I didn't. I mean, I liked it fine. It didn't do much for me. Does this mean we have to do Anna versus the Apocalypse now? Oh yes, <laughs> oh, you still need to see that. Yeah. Oh, that's oh a yes, because if we're, if we're going to do an Anna Kendrick episode, we no, have no, to no, do no, the no. other one. No Anna Kendrick. Why not? <laughs> Anna versus the Apocalypse is a musical. Yes. set in a zombie apocalypse. It does not have Anna Kendrick in it. Well, she was in the one where the devil comes or the apocalypse, but wasn't she just in another horror esque musical? Anna Kendrick. Yeah. I do not believe that to be true. Anna Kendrick is the person who is most considered a star that does the most bullshit bad movies you can imagine. <laughs> and I'll watch every single one of them. Anniversary of the Apocalypse is uh, Canadian, right? Oh, well, never mind then. I think it's British or Welsh. It's British or Canadian, one or the other. I don't know. Ah, they're all the same. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, yes, but it is fabulous. So It was fantastic. So we just got done with The Purge. And like we said in the introduction, we had a taste for flesh. And for Hunting Man. And we decided to do a couple of movies. Well, one of them which we'd seen. And the other one which, you know, had all that foofara earlier this year with the president talking about it. And right-wing media celebrities complaining about it and saying how awful it was when it all turned out to be kind of South Parky in any way. And that's The Hunt. The Belco experiments from a few years before. 2016. We actually saw that in the theaters. Yes, we did. When it came out. We were excited for that one. I don't remember why. Uh, at the time. <laughs> it was John Gallagher Jr. Of course we're excited. Well, yeah, now, but he wasn't as much of a thing back then for us. That was only and four years ago. I hadn't watched Scrubs, so I didn't care about Dr. Cox. Oh, wrong, 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 wrong. No, then, then I did. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. I do now. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have since watched Scrubs and have fallen in deep, deep love with uh, John McGinley. 
Well, I'm going to call John C. Riley like three times during the podcast. So just listeners, if you can just auto correct that in your head so Eric doesn't have to do extra editing or dubs or voiceover during the. Yeah, please don't. The Purge episode's really long. <laughs> Now, I think for the Belko experiment, part of it when we went to see it was James Gunn was kind of riding high. The first Guardians was out. Yep. So there was the hubbub about that. But a lot of it was the three of us were all working in a cubicle environment at that point. So it was kind oh, of right. A... We worked in an awful hell job. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to make our weekend viewing the same as our daytime viewing on that particular weekend. <laughs> But it ends up being a rather serendipitous pairing for this episode because we'll get into it with the movies. But I think a lot of folks perception of what the Belco experiment was going to be is what the hunt ended up being tonally. Whereas I think what a lot of people were afraid the hunt was going to be based on all the hubbub last year is what we thought the Belco experiment would be. So one is decidedly less jokey than kind of you expected going in or a lot of folks did and then the other one decidedly the other way fair that's fair and they're both what people expected the purge movies to be yes (laughs) so it all works out (laughs) or think the purge movies are i guess nobody who's seen a purge movie would make that mistake but no I know a lot of people say, I'm not going to watch that. That concept's awful. Well, I hear the Purge movies aren't political, so that might be not correct. So. <laughs> and neither am I. So, you know, the, you know, it's funny. I mean, this I was, hunt discussion's going to be fascinating. <laughs> I was telling my mother that uh, we were recording tonight, and she said, well, what were the movies? And I said, well, they're horror movies. You don't want to know about them. You just give me a look and judge me. She said, well, tell me what they're about. So I explained them, and she gave me a look, and she judged me. <laughs> We go through this almost every episode. She doesn't listen to the podcast. She doesn't like horror movies, and she only barely tolerates me. (laughs) But it was was funny because these two movies are kind of hard to describe to people as something you want to see and not getting immediately judged and looked at. More so than a lot of horror movies. I guess maybe not the torture porn genre, but... Well, I mean, I find it easier to describe Belko because it was to some degree inspired by Battle Royale. Mm. It's like take Battle Royale, but instead of like on some isolated island, it's in an office complex. And much like Battle Royale, if you downplay the whole reason why they're there (laughs) and just focus on the action and the immediate relationships, you'll enjoy it more. Mm. Well, I'd say another thing that the two movies have in common is that you can strain a little bit to call them actual horror movies, particularly The Hunt. The Hunt was, well, it's from Bloomhouse and it's pushed as a horror movie but after watching it i wouldn't classify it as such and the belco experiment i would more so but only loosely yeah the belco experiment it has serious gore it really leans into its gore element but outside of that it's yeah more action if anything i think the horror aspect of belco comes from the fact of this constant sense of helplessness they are constantly just completely at the mercy of their captors and there's always this who's going to snap first who's after me do i need to be you know more aggressive so i think there's definitely a a consistent tension which might normally fall into like a thriller category except with thrillers there's more of a not knowing what's coming whereas this is like you know what the hell's coming just a matter of when (laughs) john mcginley in an interview i read described it as science fiction which i guess it has elements of to explain why someone could have that much goddamn cash to throw around and resources. Yeah, there's definitely some science fiction going on. <laughs> but I, I think it's really they're the kind of movies that you would just, rather than calling a horror thriller, you would just say that they're genre pictures. 
Jason Blum would dispute that. <laughs> yeah. I can say this from having watched the bonus features on the DVD for The Hunt in particular. He immediately says, The Hunt is first and foremost a horror movie, but it's also a social thriller. But instantly, horror movie right up front. <laughs> Wasn't he touchy about that for like the Purge movies or something? I feel like we... He was, so I think he's just touchy about it for everything that yeah. has the words Blumhouse in front of it. We're a horror franchise, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we're a horror podcast, so clearly we at least kind of agree with Jason Bloom. That's true. That is Jason Bloom, right? Yes. Every time I say that, I feel like I'm talking about the Archie character, and then I get confused in my head. <laughs> <laughs> also, a show that you could describe as sort of a horror franchise that wouldn't normally. <laughs> oh, we should do a Riverdale episode. I would really embarrass the shit out of myself there. <laughs> well, should we get into talking about the movies? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to start with the Belko experiment, which, as we discussed, is the return of our boy John four Gallagher time, Jr. Four time. Four time. Four time. <laughs> John Gallagher Jr. <laughs> Newark, Delaware native John Gallagher Jr. And we're going to call him a friend of the podcast because we are also from Newark, Delaware. And someday we'll have him on somehow. And if anybody's listening that can facilitate that, please, 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 please help us. <laughs> Maybe we have to earn it. Maybe he has to become a five-timer. Once it's John Gallagher Jr. five-timer. <laughs> I have absolutely gone to the IMDb advanced search and searched John Gallagher Jr. with a checkbox on horror. And I think we might have hit all four, but I'll have to check again. After. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hated the newsroom, so we could maybe squint wow. and call a few of those episodes wow. horror. Not because of him. I actually liked him on that. That might be the first thing I ever saw him in was the newsroom. Same. There were a lot of people in the newsroom I liked, which is a shame that that show is so dirt awful. But, uh, <laughs> boy, I got off topic fast. So, Belko came out in yes. 2016. Yes, it did. <laughs> a movie that came to James Gunn in a dream. Absolutely. He was very excited because he heard the same thing happen to Sean Cunningham when he made Friday the 13th. He said, oh, I just had my Friday the 13th moment. I dreamt up a whole movie. Nice. Yeah, there's not going to be 13 of these. No. <laughs> there's not going to be two, the way things are going. He was originally supposed to direct this as well, in addition to writing it, but he was going through a divorce at the time, and he said, you know, I don't think I'm in the mindset to go down and shoot a couple months worth of people being mean to each other and killing each other. So he handed off that duty to Greg McLean. I think it suffered for that, honestly. I think that while he wrote it, I think his touch and his pathos is missing from it. Yeah, so that's kind of what I meant earlier when I was talking about tonal expectations. So going into this, it was like, all right, I've seen some James Gunn stuff. You know, I've seen the specials. I've seen Slither. I haven't seen Tromeo and Juliet, but eventually I, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually seen part of that. Have you? Mm-hmm. Part of it. Guess why it's part of it? Do tell. Because <laughs> he bailed halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell am I watching? So going into it, and also the concept, I think a lot of people were expecting a jokier movie than they got. I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's going to be Office Space, just with a bit more cartoonish violence, but still with that kind of heavy humor element to it. Which is not non-existent, but it's absolutely done. There's a reason that this was directed by Greg McLean, who was the director of yep. Wolf Creek and Rogue and later on Wolf Creek 2. The Darkness. Yep. And his fingerprints are absolutely present. Yeah, he really leans into the harder, rougher, grittier hardness of it. Anything that's remotely jokey is heavily sanded down. Yeah, there's absolutely satire to it, but it's... I think part of the reaction folks had to this film was, oh, it's more mean-spirited than I expected and more just brutal. Like we mentioned, the gore in it is 
there's a level of cartoonishness to it, but it's also just very explicit and very well done, but it's very icky. So I think that was a turnoff for a lot of folks when this first came out. Well, I would say that that was, I didn't like this movie. I'll just say that right up front. I wanted to like it. I like everybody in it, but I didn't like the movie. And I thought when we saw it originally in the theaters, it was like, eh, this is all right. I didn't love it. And when I saw it again, it really reinforced a lot of the things I didn't like. And part of that is the complete absence of humor in a situation that's obviously absurd. And it was kind of billed a little bit as an absurdist movie. And, you know, like you said, James Gunn is. So like you said, James Gunn has a style and his involvement in this. You just feel that lack of it, especially in scenes like early on where they're deciding who to kill. And I guess that's not that early on. It's about halfway through the movie when they're deciding who to kill in a moment where they have to eliminate a bunch of people or everybody dies when it's just absolutely dark and bleak and there's nothing in that scene played for laughs whereas you have this heightened expectation for some sort of at least incredibly dark satire and it keeps setting up these moments where you feel like there would be some satirical element to it and it keeps not paying off like that it's like oh well this could be comedic nope that was just horrific and that kept happening in the movie even great comedic actors like John R- C Riley <laughs> <laughs> You know, I realized as I was saying that, I have it in my fucking notes as John C. Riley. Nice. What the hell? And not John McGinley. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was reading that sentence, I'm like, I'm going to mention this in my notes. Wait, which way does it go? Now I'm confused. <laughs> we need to do the John C. Riley cut of the movie and just dub over John C. McGinley. Just, <laughs> like when he's talking to the, oh, hey, Leandro, I've seen those looks you've been shooting me. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Wesley Dukes for the rest Mixed of the Mixed messages. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Did any of you guys like this movie? I like parts of this movie. Yeah, I'm very, nah. I did not like this movie. This felt like... If we're keeping with the James Gunn thing, this was the DC version of, you know, a movie. This was Zack Snyder directing (laughs) a... The uh, DC movie (laughs) universe version. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, DC movie universe version. This was Zack Snyder directing a James Gunn movie. Yeah, that's pretty apt. If you want to get into about DC comics, we're going to have a bigger (laughs) fight. But yeah, I know. I did not like this movie. And it really sucks because I like so many of the actors in this. You know, Michael Rooker is in this. Yeah, they do almost nothing with him. It's a goddamn sin. <laughs> Michael Rooker's the biggest disappointment in the film. Because yeah. they set up Michael Rooker to be an awesome Michael Rooker film. And they just immediately <laughs> fucking kill him. He is there for one and only one purpose. And that's to establish the blowtorch that is used later in the film. And he has no other purpose. No. He is so underused, it is criminal. Yeah, and he is, despite the fact that James Gunn didn't direct it, one of the silver linings of the movie is they did have so many of the James Gunn players in this. From the creative side, they had Tyler Bates, who's his regular composer, did the music for it. There's Michael Rooker, who's in damn near everything he does. His brother, Sean Gunn, who's in it. So, yeah, a lot of fun folks. And also Greg Henry, who shows up at the end, who I fucking love. And I know he's been mentioned on the podcast before because we've already talked about the scene in Payback with the what fucking good are you and dude shooting the pillow moment. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Way more than I should. And Greg Henry's just good in every time he shows up. But funnily enough, I didn't recognize him as the voice in this. I didn't realize it was him until we got to the tail end. But he's actually the voice that they hear all the way through. And I didn't realize it at first. I can top that. I didn't realize it was the dude from Payback until you just said that. (laughs) See, I always think of him as the uh, asshole dad from Gilmore Girls. (laughs) (laughs) What? That says a lot about you, Nick. Hey, you know, I'm versatile. 
<laughs> this movie even has Big Head from Silicon Valley in it. Yeah, he's underused too. And well, so I guess we should we should describe what this movie's about because not everybody who is listening to this has seen this movie. You're usually much better at this, Eric, than me because I'm gonna use <laughs> different names, call it weird things, and get corrected six times by Nick. So John C. Riley and Will Ferrell are working in an office. <laughs> <laughs> Some shit about bunk beds. I don't... <laughs> See, I have to say real quick, I'm really kind of disappointed by the film because there are so many other factors that are working in its favor. I mean, it's Bloomhouse, which has done things like Invisible Man, Ma, and Split, and Ouija. The Ryan Pictures, for Christ's sake, which did Signs of the Lambs, Monkey Shines, and Woofin. And then, of course, Troll Court is responsible for Brightburn. Is that the first time Orion Pictures has ever been mentioned without the word Robocop being included in that? Sentence? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about it last episode. Every time Nick lists something, it's a weird list. I just try to shake it up, man. <laughs> we also have Saffron Company production, which is connected to this. would have Martyrs. And oh, so <laughs> that's probably where they got the makeup team from. Looking at it, it was like, yep. yeah, it's probably the makeup team from Martyrs. Got all this leftovers from Martyrs, so it's good to go. <laughs> you know, eventually we're going to have to do a really fucking awful movie like Martyrs on this. Just test our audience. It's in at least one category that's on our list of topics. This is going to be me and Eric talking with, with like, Jake ramming his head to the table constantly. <laughs> like, why? Why? <laughs> Look, if I can get through Jug Face, I can get through anything. <laughs> it's It's not that kind of bad. It's actually a really good film. But it's bad. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about martyrs. We're here to talk about a different movie with a bunch of people assassinating each other with extreme prejudice. Yeah, so the movie opens in Bogota, Colombia. And we are introduced to this building that, of the Belco Company. But before we do that, very fortuitously, we are shown images of slaughter. We're shown this meat market of people sharpening knives. Raw ribs, men sampling sausage, a guy measuring a chicken to carve it up. And then we get, again, our first side of four time, four time, four time, four time. <laughs> it's a goddamn treasure. <laughs> Who is on his way to work while a cover of I Will Survive plays in the background. So there's some of that cheeky James Gunn humor that you would expect. Yep, it's a Spanish cover of I Will Survive. I just want to know, do the radio stations in Colombia play nothing but covers of 70s pop songs in Spanish? Is that like, because <laughs> literally that's the only thing they have in this movie whenever the radio plays. Yeah, and they're all awesome. So if that's true, I want to listen to the radio in Colombia. <laughs> the California Dreaming one later is oh, terrific. The one at the end credits is really good. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the soundtrack to um, The Life Aquatic. Mm. Just a little bit different. <laughs> Am I the only one who writes about anything about this? The soundtrack of Life Aquatic is a yes. bunch of David Bowie yes. songs yeah. sung in, in Portuguese. Spanish by Portuguese. Sue Portuguese by... Nope, not going to remember. Anyway. A very famous... John C. Riley. <laughs> <laughs> so John C. Riley pulls into work and he pulls in... <laughs> that was a legit screw-up. It was <laughs> Eric, don't forget about the lucky corn cob, too. Though. Yes, he picks up his lucky corn cob. There's a street vendor who has all these freaky looking corn cobs with like, you know, little pipe cleaner arms and things stuck onto him. And he's you know, telling him, you know, I made it myself. I made it myself. And we don't see it. But John Gallagher picks one of them up to give to an associate of his. And so then he drives into work. His office building is the Belco Company. And there is a new gatehouse in place and a new set of guards who are being much more thorough about inspecting people as they come through the office. And 
We're then, as these folks kind of trickle into this office building in Columbia, we're introduced to Danny Wilkins, played by Melanie Diaz, who is a new hire. And she's being introduced to the company by Vince Agostino, played by Brent Sexton, who is one of those that guy actors I absolutely love. And every time he shows up and Deadwood and Justified, he's just a really, really solid actor. And he's the head of human resources and he's introducing her to the company. There's a sequence in which we're overhearing some phone calls of the company. And we overhear one of the telemarketers saying that the company's role is Belco is a nonprofit organization that facilitates American companies in South America in the hiring of American workers. So during this whole sequence, we're just introduced to the various characters. We see Tony Goldwyn, who's playing Barry Norris, who's the COO. We mentioned John C. McGinley earlier, who's playing Wendell Dukes, who's this really creepy and awkward and turns out psychotic executive who works under Barry. And then after that, we're also introduced to, we mentioned Michael Rooker earlier, who's playing Bud Melks, who's the head of maintenance. And he's accompanied by David Desmalchian, who plays Lonnie, his associate. And David Desmalchian, another great actor, who basically has the market cornered on characters whose description includes the phrase, not all there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something interesting, and it surprised me when I started diving into the movie, is that, like we mentioned, this was shot on location in Colombia. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's kind of interesting about that is all the background actors and actresses and all the folks in the very bit parts are actual famous Colombian actors and actresses. They're all nice. soap opera stars, apparently. Nice. And I, I didn't have a chance to look them up and see what they were in because I'm terrible at looking up actors and actresses. But I saw McGinley mention that in an interview I was reading, and I thought that was kind of cool. And they were all underutilized. Pretty much, yeah. But it, it seems like a weird movie to film on location. Because it all takes place inside of an office building, except for a few outside scenes. You could have filled this shit anywhere, and it would have been exactly the same. But it feels more authentic to have Colombians around, and bravo to them for doing that. But it's still a little weird that this is a location film. My guess would be, I picked up the script for this, but I didn't actually have a chance to read it before recording. But my guess would be is the location was probably left nondescript, and it was wherever we end up shooting it, that's where it'll be. (laughs) Okay. That would be my guess, because there's very little in this, aside from Belco being an international company, there's very little in this that makes it intrinsic to its location. And also, supposedly, the actors had an amazing time outside of shooting the movie. They were, they, yeah. I saw a couple of interviews where they were talking about they were like going to dance clubs every night and just hanging out and yeah. just having a ton of fun in uh, Bogota. But. McGinley was talking about it and how on most movies you don't necessarily get real close, but in this one, they all had such a good time together, they got real close. That's lovely sort of a bit of a family thing. They wouldn't bring their families because Bogota was too dangerous for that. <laughs> but they themselves had such a great time that they speak very highly of this movie. Which is another reason that it's such a shame that it wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first things we notice that gets people question what the heck going on is that they are sending the locals home. All of the local Colombians are being sent home away from work. So only the 80 expats are allowed into the building. Yeah, 80 expats are allowed into the building, so the camera sort of tracks through, and we're introduced to this various group of people who work in the various departments of the company. All of a sudden, a voice comes in over the intercom, which most of the folks who work in the office building aren't even aware they have an intercom, and this voice states the following. We mentioned earlier this voice is Greg Henry, and it states the following. All employees, no matter what you're doing, please stop and lend me your full attention. There are currently 80 of you in the building. In eight hours, most of you will be dead. Your chance of survival increases by following my orders and excelling at the tasks I place before you. Your first task is simply this. Murder any two of your fellow employees within the next half hour. 
how they are killed and how they are chosen to be killed is of no consequence. But if there are not two dead bodies in the building within 30 minutes, you will face repercussions. And the key bit that we left out of this is our favorite moment of this when we saw it in theaters, which was also my favorite moment watching this again for the pod, is right after Greg Henry says the phrase, all employees, please stop and lend me your full attention. It cuts to a side character by the name of Roberto, whose response is, hey, it's Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes me laugh every time. (laughs) (laughs) so the voice gives out this announcement and then we mentioned before that made a joke about the expenses this company must have behind them to do what they do because they apparently invested in a shit ton of adamantium that they (laughs) roll down in front of all the windows and doors these metal grates come down and at first you just think they're kind of steel shutters but as the film establishes later they can't even burn through it with a blowtorch doesn't even leave a mark it's not even hot Yeah, it doesn't react to heat, so presumably it's either adamantium or it's the shit that Mjolnir's made from or something. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I could be part of what John C. Wright or uh, John C. Wright. Fuck, fuck, fuck. (laughs) You've poisoned this entire episode, Jake. I completely fucking potty pooled everybody. (laughs) Honey's cat is missing, Eric. Sydney Pryor is alive. Uh, when John C. McGinley was making reference to this being a science fiction film, it could have been that. It could have been more implied in this weird metal that they used to cover all the entrances and exits and all the windows. One of the things that gets introduced before all this happens is that they all have implants in their heads. Yes. They're told that they're there for tracking. There's a lot of kidnapping in the area, so everyone is implanted with these trackers, so that should anything happen, they'll be able to find you. Yeah, they throw a line in there when Melanie Diaz is going through her uh, introduction did you make sure to go to the doctor, surgeon, whatever, and get your tracking implant in? So make sure to put that in right away. You know, and I got to tell you, if I ever work for a company that tried to put anything inside my fucking skull, <laughs> yeah, no. not going to happen. You want to put something in my arm? Maybe if the price is right. A <laughs> few other places? Fine. But not my skull. I've seen enough movies where people get their head blown up by some idiot with a microwave gun or whatever. Never going to happen. And I'm not even that paranoid. I'll do anything for money. But there's a limit. Jake will be the only one with a, with a tracker in his ass cheek. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you want to put the tracker between my ass cheeks and I got to clench the entire time I'm working there, if you pay me enough, I'll do it. <laughs> but I will say the initial announcement, it gives away the lead to the point that I would not want to participate in this any way whatsoever. You can tell it's just going to be a Saw game. Because he says right there, most of you are going to be dead at the end of these eight hours. So right there, you know, killing two people is just the start. So either I'm going full Rambo right at that point, or I'm just saying, fuck you, I'm not playing your game, and I'm just going to make you have to kill us all, because that's what you're going to do anyway. Yep. Which basically is exactly what Mike says. Mike's like, why do they have any incentive of letting any of us go after this? You know, it's like, don't assume that you can win this game. He said it. He literally says it. You can't win this game. We're going to kill most of you. And Barry, the COO, conveniently blots that out later and says, well, it'll buy us time if we do what they ask. This entire movie is nothing more than a treatise saying, yes, all of your managers and CEOs are fucking psychos. Yes. You suspected it. It's true. (laughs) As I sit here unemployed, I'll just say no comment to that one. But uh, That's part of the overall problem with the movie is that it instantly removes most of the stakes to a degree. 
because you instantly are thinking, well, only one person makes it out of this or nobody makes it out of this. And as things escalate, it's hard because really at that point, you're just waiting to see how people are going to die. Absolutely. It's like Battle Royale. You know there's going to be one person walking out of here. The question is, is how do you get to that spot and who, right. who stands up, who overcomes, who survives? That's the point. And Battle Royale, to a degree, makes that kind of interesting because there's elements of rebellion and people fighting back and all that and that, and not so much in this. And I think the thing that perfectly encapsulates that and, and the problems I had overall with the movie is Melanie Diaz because she goes and hides right away. Yeah. She's just like, fuck this. And the movie follows her all the way through as she's hiding and doing all these clever things and then finally just takes care of her with very little fanfare. Yep. And it's like, well, why did we spend 10 minutes of this movie on this woman just to, to do this? She's the embodiment of your hope. And when she goes down, that's supposed to be the moment you're supposed to lose hope. <laughs> yeah, except the problem is this. You never have any hope. It tells you that everybody is going to die. It tells you right up front. And then it gives you no reason to think anything else. Your enjoyment of the film will probably operate in direct correlation to your tolerance for its general mean-spiritedness. Yes. Yeah. Like we said, it's not devoid of satire. It's not devoid of humor, but it's absolutely has a crueler bent to it. A consistent strain of cruelty throughout the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. Like if you wanted to see Dr. Cox act on everything he says he'll do in Scrubs, this is the movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> but if that doesn't interest you, it's probably not something you're going to enjoy. And like I said, I like I feel bad saying this because I want to like this movie so badly. I like everybody in it. Yep. I like people involved in it. E even the concept is interesting. It just it works so hard against everything that I enjoy, even in this kind of horror movie. That it the heart of it's ripped out. Yeah. I I don't know. Anyway, well, you're right. You're right. I don't say that often, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's I'm I'm a little confused now. <laughs> Do you have like a reverse bell, Eric? <laughs> Jake's like, wait, am I wrong? <laughs> Maybe this is a good movie. <laughs> Holy shit, turns out I love this film. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> so yeah, nobody really takes them seriously at first. And then so we was kind of waiting and it was a little cautious and intense and trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And then time runs out and without even warning, suddenly like people start going out of my head and four heads just go pow right out the back. There's a little implant just go off, take out the entire like base of the brainstem. It takes out specifically people on the roof and in the lobby. I think they chose that because the locations where the two main groups are. You have all the stoners up top <laughs> and all the normal workers downstairs. And I'll say this, I think early on, everybody's reactions are very well done. Yeah. Yes. It's not until later when everybody turns into a cartoon, but early on, I feel like they did a good job, especially the director did a good job of kind of giving you a realistic vibe to how people would react in this situation. Mm. Just a thought. I mean, heck, even Marty up on the roof, like he, he's the whole time, he's just like, get over it. This is bullshit. And the minute that person's head goes off, he's just like, Okay, <laughs> I'm wigged out. I am no longer blowing this off. <laughs> Time to start emptying water bottles. <laughs> That's a fascinating response from him. He's like, okay, clearly they're fucking with us in all sorts of ways. 
the water must be tainted. He just starts pulling up all the goddamn water jugs out of the water coolers, <laughs> dumping them everywhere. Like, don't did you drink the water? There must be a psychotropic <laughs> in it. Yeah, and starts yeah. emptying all the water jugs. And conversely, with this, while he's emptying out all the water coolers, this mysterious force who's behind all this have shut down the air conditioning. Yep. So you know, the heat's starting to spike in the building, further exacerbating everybody's reactions to this. And of course, the water is probably fine. So now they got hot and no water. So yep. good job. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. So now we have Mike realizes, and it's not that far of a jump, honestly. The explosions are coming right from where the, he got the fucking implant done. He realizes this is probably the implant. So he runs to the bathroom. He's trying to take it out, which I think is a great first move. But unfortunately, he takes so long. They're like, you have 10 seconds to stop this shit or we're going to blow you up. Yep. And he does not make it in the time. He cannot get to the implant fast enough. And he is forced to be in the same situation as everyone else. In his defense, you know, trying to rip into the back of your head would not be a very easy thing to do. So, Oh, God, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two things about this. One, this was the only gore in the movie that bothered me. It was upsetting. I have such a problem with ra- like self-inflicted razor wounds and things like that. I, I can't like I could barely watch it. It just made me really uncomfortable. Like when Dr. Cox gets it in the face later on. Like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> But this, it's like, ooh, razor blade in the back of the head? No, 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 no. I don't know. Michael Rooker's but also, kind of got me a little bit, too. Michael Rooker's was rough. The dent in his head? Yeah. That was rough. That was yeah. pretty good. That just made me think of Michael Westbrook. <laughs> Look, if Michael Westbrook can win a playoff game with a dent in his face, Michael Rooker can get back up. <laughs> I have a point to make on that later. All right, so Jake, you have problems with self-inflicted knife wounds. I have problems with loss of, like, fingers or limbs. What you got, Eric? Oh, God. Uh... It's oh, it's absolutely glass for me. Anything with broken glass, ah, and feet. That makes sense. Feet. Ugh. So, which is best encapsulated in Die Hard? Yeah, seeing that, that scene in sense. Die Hard fucked yes. me up. So, anything <laughs> involving feet and stepping on something sharp. Yep. Respect. How about you, Fred? I think the one that always throws me is like the unaware injury. So, like when they finally realize that something happened to them, they're like, "Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, I'm fine." And then it's like, "Oh shit!" And then they just have that realization oh. moment. <laughs> that one always throws me. I'm going to look up a movie for you then. I got the perfect film for you. I forget the name. I'll have to research it later. But essentially, there's this car crash, and they're going, they're going for help. And they end up taking the one friend who looks busted to the hospital. And, they, they, and the nurse quickly takes him and walks him off. And he goes, how are you else doing? I think I'm okay. And he goes, what you got going on here? He goes, oh, I got a little, little piece of glass here. And you see this little piece of glass in his gut. And he starts pulling it, and it just keeps fucking coming out. Like, oh, my God! It's so gnarly and upsetting. Yeah. Okay, we're off track. <laughs> Nick, if you don't like hand injuries, I've got a director to recommend for you. A guy named Mike Flanagan. I've heard of him. <laughs> Hashtag Mike Flanagan hates hands. <laughs> I might have checked that out. See how that goes. <laughs> Gerald's Game in particular, I think, would be good for you. Uh, it's funny. The Gerald's Game degloving is less upsetting to me than someone like losing a thumb. You know, so it's, it's, I can't explain it. It's just the way it is. But anyway, we got to get back to Belko. Yes. Do we, though? Uh, we gotta get through this and one thing we touched on is in tandem with the explosion starting to go off the two members of the maintenance team michael rooker and david dismalchian who were introduced to the david dismalchian character is starting to get even more twitchy than normal starting to panic michael rooker's trying to calm him down and the david dismalchian character does an errant swing with a heavy duty wrench clips michael rooker in the forehead we see he has this heavy dent in his head and he just kind of starts repeating wait a minute Wait a minute, wait a minute. And he slides down to the ground. Uh, David Dismalchian is distraught by was, this. That might have been like the hardest death for me. That was, yeah, that was rough. But what? That well, rough. We'll get back to this. 
And then there's Melanie Diaz, who plays the new hire. She witnesses this. David Desmalchian starts to freak out on her. She pushes him in self-defense. And which he ends up backing up into a nail. So she inadvertently gets... What kind of building just had these two <laughs> random nails sticking out of the wall? It was three it's, nails. I, I hate when people do this. Like, this isn't an in-construction building, you know? This isn't a clearly a wrecked and in, in, in the middle of repair zone. It's just two fucking metal rods sticking out of the wall just going, please, I want to kill someone. I've been built and left here to kill someone. It's incredibly unlikely anyone will be here and pushed into me, but please, I just want to kill someone. That's like... Nick, it's Why? a building designed for people to get killed in. No, it's a building designed for people to kill each other in. Not it, This is not like the shaft, okay? This is not <laughs> like a killer building that wants to eat people, all right? This <laughs> so the adamantium doors, yeah, no problem. But this nail in the wall, what the fuck? No, both are bad. At least the adamantium was intentional. This is like, why the fuck is this here? But also, like, that building is extremely clean. All the lines are nice yeah. and straight. It, it really is just out of nowhere. This is a building built by people who had the money to put adamantium shields in place, <laughs> and they made all of it nice and clean, except that, you know what? Fuck it. We got these last two studs taken out. Should we, like, <laughs> cut them off and sand them down? Yeah, whatever, you know. Maybe someone will push someone into it. It's perfect, right? <laughs> just leave it. It's fine. <laughs> I can honestly say this was a kill I didn't think about at all <laughs> it didn't register to me even a little bit that that would probably I just say yeah fine fucking coat hook whatever who gives a shit let's go i i will give the money this they had 80 people in the building and you can keep track of the kill counts oh, you yeah. can keep score none are off screen everyone who dies in this film you can like keep your own little scorecard just knock them up as you go and i did i did too <laughs> yeah in my notes, yeah. I just have a list of how many more have to be killed. Yeah, they do a very good job tracking that. Really? None are off screen even when their heads start to explode? No. no. Oh. Even if they're not necessarily on screen, you're in the same room. When it happens, you hear poof. Yep, you get the audio. Yeah, you get the audio <laughs> for each one. Okay. Pow, 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 pow. <laughs> All right. That's clever. I'll give the movie that. It's true to form. It's like we have these people. Even though you're not going to necessarily know each one of them, we want you to be somewhat invested in each one. And if we want you to do that, then we need to give you the payoff on each person's ending. So, And they do. I mean, the kill count's got to be like 86 in this film. Yeah, I think it is. When you consider the ending? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So having established that they're not fucking around with this mysterious voice that's on the intercom, the next set of instructions that come over the intercom is simply, in two hours, we want 30 of you dead by any means necessary. To be clear, they say we want 30 of you dead within two hours, and if we don't get 30 of you dead within two hours, 60 of you will be killed. Yeah, we'll kill another 30 on top of that. Yep. Yeah. So they make an attempt to run a banner off the side of the, the roof to get help, and in which they're fired upon by the new guards who were installed. While this is happening, Barry is trying to make a play for the keys to the armory that they have, which is held by the security guard who stands his ground on it. This upset me. It's such a management move. This upset No, no. It made sense what they were doing. I get that. You know, they grab the blowtorch. They go, I mean, you won't give me the keys. We're going to find a way to get these guns because we need these guns to have the upper hand and maintain it. I get that. That part makes sense. And when Mike and Evan and Leandra find them and give them shit and he talks down Evan from shooting the management, I get oh, it was the dumbest move, honestly. They should have just fucking <laughs> killed all three of them there. Yeah. But that aside, they're being human. I respect it. I understand where the choice came from. And that makes sense, too. But when they finally go, okay, we can't kill these guys, Mike's response 
is to shoot the goddamn valve off the propane tank. Yep. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) You don't shoot the goddamn propane tank when you're like, let's not kill anybody, but I'm going to stop them from welding. How are we going to do that? Blam, blam, blam. Like, whoo. (laughs) It's like, I wish it had gone off just to reward them for their stupidity. (laughs) I have a note agreeing with you, Nick, and it's just that John Gallagher is way wrong about the security guard not shooting it. And I actually wrote again, John C. (laughs) Riley. You know, it's funny. We keep talking about like logic problems with this. The only logic problem that jumped out at me was them not blowing Milch's head off when he starts to try and pull the thing out of it. That they give him a 10 count? Yeah. That they give him a 10 count instead of just, all right, fine, pop. That didn't make much sense to me. One other thing, when he shoots the gas line there, if you notice, no one goes over and turns off the tank. So that tank is still spewing out. Yes! You know, whatever's coming out of there. So, you know, propane or whatever kind of flammable gas is in there is just filling that room up at that point. All six of them should have just died in that yes. moment. All right? Yeah. There's just no way. Yeah. And the only thing I've got to offer on them not blowing up Milch's head when he's trying to cut the device out is, and this is a bit of a leap, but the movie does establish at the end, based on the people who are left after they start activating devices, the people who are left standing, a lot of them are the upper management folks who we learn in a couple lines of dialogue that some of the members of management have special forces training. So it's some of military. Yeah. Generally the people who are left at the end are either the most lethal or the most volatile in some way. So Mm -hmm. it must be that by some fucking coincidence, they hypothesize that Milch would have something of value to contribute to this nonsensical experiment. So that's the best I got. It's it's a leap, but that's the best I got. I definitely think when they, so yeah, spoilers. You know, they end up not making the time limit. So they only get 29 people out of 30, and then they start popping heads at that point, leaving you with only 14 people. And I definitely think that the 14 who were left were 100% chosen based on their actions previously. Yeah. They wanted to see Mike in, in the mix. They wanted to see Barry in the mix. They were curious what Vince would do. Everything was a decided choice, I feel, in that last group. And then like, a handful maybe left as well, just as cannon fodder, like the Clinny lady. she was a random choice i think mike and barry were were for certain intentional someone in that hangar who's monitoring this is i got money on that cleaning lady (laughs) she's my dark horse candidate to take it all she's the uh not the constant the control she's the control group (laughs) (laughs) nice we got these extreme fractions but we need a control group as well so throw her in (laughs) you know it's funny you mentioned you know i've got money on the cleaning lady I bet I would have liked this movie more if at the ending it turned out that this was a betting pool yeah, rather than some kind of whatever the fuck it was. If, like there was, you found out that there's a bunch of rich people betting on who kills you. I would have liked this more. Well, this is 100%. I, I has to be partially inspired by the 1963 Milgram experiment. That was the social experiment where they brought someone in. They said, look, we're looking to see if negative reinforcement helps learning. We had this other guy in the other room. And you're going to ask him questions, and he's going to reply with pushing buttons on the computer. When he gets them right, you press the light that gives him a green light, and if he gets it wrong, you press the button that gives him a shock, and the shocks will get increasingly stronger. And what happens is, is that in the course of the experiment, the guy starts getting things wrong, 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 so they keep pushing this button that gets wrong, worse and worse, and he starts hearing screaming from the other side. Ah! Oh! And then he starts hearing the guy go, Oh, ow, my heart. No, please stop. Uh. And these guys like, I I think I should stop. They're like, continue the experiment. And then they keep doing the experiment. And eventually most 
unfortunately, most people kept pushing the button to the point where the guy on the other side of the wall stopped making noises and then had to do like four more questions. And the key was is that the real experiment had nothing to do with the person on the other side of the wall. It was 100% about the guy pushing the button to shock him to see if people are willing to do this kind of thing given authority approval. Mm-hmm. Someone in authority tells you to do this. Someone in authority tells you you have to do this. Somebody who's in control says it's okay. You're not at fault here. It's everything to do with us. Will you still make the amoral choice to potentially kill someone? And at 100% felt like what this experiment was about from the organizer's standpoint. They were like, you know killing people is wrong, but if I tell you you have no choice... Are you going to go do it instead of having us be your murderers? Are you going to become the murderer for any chance at survival? You know, it's it's really disturbing that the experiment actually happened in real yeah. life. <laughs> so it's not too far fetched to think somebody was rich be like, well, let's take this to the next step. It's far fetched to think someone's that rich to pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> they're also pretty shitty experimenters though, because they pretty much anyone who voices any kind of dissent, they're like, oh, you're one of the people we're going to off. Because yeah, anybody who said anything to the cameras. Just the experiment, whatever, except for Sean Gunn, and I think he was left in as the chaos element. Yeah. But everyone else... Wild card! <laughs> they basically say, if you refuse to comply, we're going to kill you. Yep. I I don't know what they're getting out of this. Well, I mean, if you don't comply... Okay, well, it depends what you mean by comply. If you want to remove the bomb from your head, or if you want to put signs over the wall, you are breaking the experiment, so it actually is safer for them to take you out of the experiment. But if it's the, we're going to kill 30 of you if you don't comply... If it was, we're going to kill all of you if you don't comply, that'd be a different question. That'd be more of a, if at the end of it, they didn't comply, they'd probably want to talk to all of them and see what's going on. But when you make it a, one of you is going to get out scenario, then they're more than happy to back up as many killings as they want, because they only want one of you in the end anyway. Well, but you know from the end that no matter what, everybody's going to die except one or two people. Oh, guaranteed. So you're not really learning much. (laughs) You're basically saying, okay, let's find out how many people would lay down and die in a do or die situation. Yeah, that's exactly what they're looking for. That's about all they're interested in. All the information you would have gotten on that one would have been in the second round. Yes, no, because the two experiments are different. The one is, are you all willing to sacrifice a number of you to save the majority of you? And in the end, it's like, how many people are you willing to kill so that you can get out? <laughs> it changes the motive and therefore kind of changes the structure. Now, one could argue from a scientific perspective that the second experiment is already flawed and contaminated because of what happened the first time. No, first half is an experiment. Second half is a game. Because you're already the only people left are the people who are likely willing to kill at that point. Depends on whether the uh, 30 explosions were random or targeted. Either way, you're not getting any useful information out of this, which is part of my problem I have with the movie. Eh. I will say this. I got a, I got a John, uh, John McGinley. Come on. Whatever's. Come on. You can do it. Fucking Dr. Cox's. You can do it. <laughs> quote. John C. Who? That was kind of similar. John C. McGinley. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the, this is from a Screenfish interview. And it says, I would find a way to get home to my family. I'd do whatever it took. That's probably why they cast me. I don't think there's that big a distance between me and Wendell. I think that I'd have a different approach than him, but I do whatever it takes to get home from my family. Dr. Cox is scary. Yes, he is. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say there's one non-kill that really bothered me, and that's Leandra's character when she's being chased by Terry, and they're saying there's less than two minutes to go, and she's all set up to have the office supply kill, and then she stops. When they know they're at 29, and if she just kills that one fucker, they're not going to kill 30 other people. 
So that was one non-kill that kind of bothered me. Because I'm like, you know, there's that greater good thing. Maybe you can get into a little bit. And right there, you have a fucker that tried to kill you, was willing to kill you. And then you show mercy just so you can watch his head explode, you know, 10 seconds later. Well, it was just like the guy says at the end. She realized that she found all life to be sacred. You know, and that even if the villains were going to kill 30 people, didn't mean she had to kill anyone. But she realized how pointless it was. Well, she learned pretty quick how pointless it was. She should have known how pointless it was. But I mean, it comes down to the fact that, you know, there is a big difference between being the result of someone else killing and you killing. They are two different things. She also may have mortally wounded him before that moment, too. Because she put some pretty good slices into him. And it's not like they have a lot of, you know... With a paper cutter, yeah. Yeah, with a paper cutter. So it's not like he was going to live anyway. But we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) And also, to the best of her knowledge, at that moment, not killing him was going to kill 30 people. Yes. It's different. It's the trolley question. You know, there's five people in the track. And I can hit this brake, which will turn it over and it'll hit someone else. But it's like, are you going to choose to kill someone? Or are you going to let the environment kill someone? But you're also, I mean, you're not learning anything from that. You know that this person would stop that. That's an age-old question. That's been a long time people wish they could do this kind of experiment question. <laughs> That's a, that is an established psychological conundrum. Yeah, but it's also the same problem, again, I have with this whole movie, is that it's not so much an experiment as it is a game or, you know, violence porn. Because there's not really anything you're going to learn out of this. I disagree. I'm waiting for Jake to really throw us a left hook on this and say, you know what would have saved this movie for me? Is if it ended with John Gallagher waking up in bed and it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> if that were true, I would have been so happy when we watched this in theaters. Jake has been like, God damn it! Like, rip the seat out of the floor in front of him and talk. Just it. when you know the answers, Jake changes the questions. <laughs> what probably would have saved it again is if, if you found out it was all about gambling. But the other thing is if they had explained even a little bit what they were trying to do. Yeah, so let's get to the what they're trying to do a bit. So to speed run through the middle of this a bit, since we're hovering towards the ending and a lot of what we've been talking about, just real quick, the upper management, they start rounding people up, they begin executing them. There's some semblance of order initially, but then it's they just start picking people out. And Barry singles out the John C. Riley character. They start executing a lot of them. <laughs> Someone pulls the power, so it descends into disarray. Like Fred mentioned, they come up one kill short, so they activate 31 triggers to blow up 31 more people. Leaving 14 alive. To the tune of Tchaikovsky. So. And one of the sequences in, in the film that I thought actually worked pretty well, which is as Tchaikovsky's playing and they're activating these explosives, it cuts to Sean Gunn's character, who is, again, already just going into full conspiracy theory, paranoid mode with the psychotropics in the water and whatnot. And it's him in the cafeteria where all his friends are underneath the cafeteria tables. And as their explosives are going off, you're just seeing the top of the table jump and all the silverware and stuff (laughs) clatter as he's just repeating to himself, it's all in my mind. It's all in my mind. That bit I actually thought was a cool visual, just him standing there and you just see these tables jumping rather than, you know, there's plenty of other blood spray going on in all the other sequences. But that one in the cafeteria, I thought was kind of a nifty visual. It very much felt like they were taking out everybody who was just hiding. Like if you did nothing to contribute to the situation, you were chosen. And the fact, the only reason Danny wasn't targeted in that situation is because she happened to take out (laughs) someone herself earlier. So she was given a gold card. My favorite one was right at the end when a big head, as I'm going to call him, well, he's only alive for a second later. (laughs) But anyway, so it's like, I could just imagine the guys in the control station say, oh shit, we were short one. Like, fuck it. Let's just take out Big Head. (laughs) (laughs) Playing basically his Silicon Valley character in this. Yeah, he is. 
So for the final folks who are left, the rules that are now established are basically you've got one hour and whoever has the most kills at the end of that hour lives and the rest of you won't. So then even characters who've had some semblance of a moral code up until then, like Brent Sexton, who plays Vince, the head of HR, he picks up a gun and starts killing friends. That's his breaking moment. Like, he's been trying to be a good guy up to this point, but he's done. He just... Yeah, and not only does he start killing his friends, but he does so. Once he runs out of bullets, he immediately goes to making makeshift Molotov cocktails by <laughs> hitting the recycling bin. It's not only am I going to kill my friends, I'm going to kill my friends in a really fucked up slow way. I want them to burn to death. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, dude. I respect it to a degree. It gives you the very valuable scientific information that, yes, when you push some people to the limit... They will probably kill people. But you know, it's it's interesting. He's kind of smart about it. He's like, well, they don't have a gun anymore. I still want a ranged weapon. I don't want to go hand-to-hand or melee. So I'm going to make a distance Molotov. <laughs> well, there's also one other thing there. Because at the start of that announcement, they also give the tally at that point, which is... That was amazing! Barry had 11 kills. Wendell Dukes had 7. Vincent had 1. And then Danielle, which I like when they announce it, because a uh, guy that has her hand around his shoulder, he kind of immediately takes it away. She has one kill as well. But... Here's the problem with this whole thing, right? Whoever has the most kills, there are only 16 people left. Yep. Barry already has 11. So literally, if Barry just kills Wendell, he could just sit back and just make sure he stays alive. He doesn't have to do anything else. I kept track of that here. There's a point in here in my notes where I'm like, oh, Barry's officially safe. Go hide, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is, I don't think Barry ever finds Wendell. So at no point does Barry have confirmation that he has... The most kills standing and it's going you know, to near it. the end. He does before he goes after John Gallagher. He does see that uh, Wendell is dead. Oh, at the very when it's just the two of them. Yeah, it's just the two of them. Before he goes in after him, he does see that Wendell is dead. You're right. At that point, it should have seen Wendell just said, fuck it, and turned around and hid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he's the COO or the CFO or something. So, you know, he's bad at math. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so. They have the running tally. Yeah, they have the running tally. The final 14 begin offing each other in various ways. Leandra gets a hold of an axe and takes out the John C. McGinley, the John C. McGinley character, (laughs) who was creeping on her earlier. (laughs) And she demonstrates great grouping by killing him with an axe and managing to hit him in the exact same spot four times. Oh, yeah. Based on those. Wow, it was great aim, great grouping. So while this is happening, while. Wendell and Barry are like, let's go! Let's end this with a bang. Marty is still alive and has the brilliant idea, him and his friend, going around to the people who were killed by office workers. Mm-hmm. Because if you were killed by an office worker, you were not killed by an exploding bomb, which means you still have a live bomb in your head. So he's been going around to each of the bodies, collecting the bombs from those heads. There's a nice little solid pile of them that uh, Mike takes from him. Yeah, which Marty initially plans on using him to blow a hole through the door, but Marty ends up dying as well, killed by John C. McGinley. So everyone is just whittled down from that point until we are finally left with Mike Milch, played by John Gallagher Jr., and Barry Norris, the COO, played by Tony Goldwyn. They begin a brawl in an office room and activate this, you know, welcome to Belco PowerPoint display sort of thing. And Milch is able to get a hold of this heavy-duty tape dispenser, and begins just smashing Tony Goldwyn in the head, gets a few slow motion blows in, and then the voice comes in and says, Congratulations, Mr. Milch. You're the winner. And all the shutters come up, and Milch is escorted outside to the hangar that is adjacent to this building where we meet Greg fucking Henry, the voice we've been hearing for the duration of the film, where he has this half-scarred face, which isn't explained that we get, and he sits 
notes down, says he wants to ask him some questions. And when we were talking earlier about the reasoning behind this, they're loath to give up any details to John Gallagher, but they do tell him the one bit we get is, we're part of an international organization, Mr. Milch. Some of the greatest thinkers in the world who believe social scientists must be allowed to study human behavior unfettered by conventional concepts. And believe me, we've learned an incredible amount about the human mind and behavior since we started these experiments. And when John C. John Gallagher Jr. questions why <laughs> and what for, Greg Henry's response is, well, perhaps someday the world will be better built. It's not my concern. Science is method. We're simply gathering data. And that's pretty much all we get for the reasoning behind it. And they're asking a series of vague questions on how would you describe your feelings? Sad, happy, blah, blah. Oh, I flash back on that one. I'm like, oh, God damn it. I hate these survey questions. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about this at work? Are you mostly satisfied? Somewhat satisfied? It's like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> Nick, are you six dots satisfied there? I am six dots not satisfied there. <laughs> they should have sent Milch home and tell him, you go home and relax, but check your email. You're going to get a survey monkey email in a little bit. So if you can just respond to that and let us know, we'd really appreciate it. If I was these guys, my first question would be, why didn't you go to some place where we absolutely could not have had cameras and then tried again removing the bomb? That would have been my first question. Because nobody does that, even though a lot of people are in places where they clearly can't have cameras. Anyway, that was something that bothered me through the whole thing. Nobody tries to remove the bomb again. Well, the problem is they have no idea where the cameras are. And they're told that if anybody goes looking for a camera, they're in trouble. But they didn't blow anybody up for hiding in the cabinet, so. But speaking of the bombs, so while Greg Henry is doing this really broad questioning sequence, John Gallagher reflects back on the fact that he picked up all the unexploded tracking devices that Sean Gunn's character had rounded up earlier and Milch had the foresight as he was coming in to slip these in the pockets of everyone in the room. So he instantly makes a dive for this control board, which has all these named switches on them, which he can clearly infer that that's the activation device for these bombs, and just starts flipping all the unactivated switches, and all the bombs go off on everyone in the room. Not all of them. He has to grab a rifle and take out one or two guys, yeah. No, he has to be careful to not blow his own head yeah, off. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that would have made for a great ending. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck all of you. <laughs> I would have respected that ending. Yeah. This gets us to the ending, which I was looking for, which is, so what this whole builds up to is that, you know, one person survives having, you know, killed some of their coworkers, and then they ask this person a series of questions. The way I really wanted this movie to end, and I said this back when we first saw it in theaters, was, I wanted the John Gallagher character and the Tony Goldwyn character to just kill each other. And then we see the shutters come up and everything else is the same. We see the Greg Henry character giving the speech about we're part of an international organization, some of the greatest thinkers. And then when he gets to the question and says, so want to rank you how are you feeling on a scale of one to ten all this it cuts and we see that it's michael rooker's character because we don't see him die <laughs> he gets a traumatic brain injury but it's not specifically stated that he's dead so i just wanted it to be him asking all these questions to michael rooker who's sitting in a chair with a goddamn dent in his forehead just going wait a minute wait a minute 
Wait a minute. And then Greg Henry just shakes and goes, we, we really should have thought this experiment through a little bit. <laughs> like, how awesome would that have been if Michael Roger won on a technicality? <laughs> I also would have respected that ending more. Yes. But the ending that we get is John Gallagher, after he blows these people up, he steps outside and there is this pullback shot. We realize he's being watched on a camera. So just like the control room we just saw in the hangar, there's another control room somewhere else. And this shot pulls back and we see there are many, 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 many monitors of similar experiments going on. About 160 monitors. And each one seems to be at a different location, focusing on a single lone survivor. Some of them clearly homicidal and manic, some suicidal, and some just kind of like walking around in a daze. This is just a huge scale thing where they say stage one has completed. Commencing stage two. And credits. And then that's the Velco experiment. Wah, wah. Which I just have this image now. It's like, we're doing a different experiment now. We're going to collect all these people who survive, and now they have to raise a baby that's really an egg and not drop it for 25, 25 days. <laughs> stage two is much more docile than stage one. <laughs> Turns out the sequel is The Purge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we basically gave our two cents on the movie early on. So for me, my opinion of it is pretty much where I was when I first saw it. I think it's it's very meh. It has moments of merit, but on the whole, it's it's just eh. It's good with the action. It's good with the tension. The concept is a little rough, but its inspiration from Battle Royale is obvious. That being said, it is a Sean Gunn movie, and it's clearly missing the heart of that because he wasn't involved in it, and it needed a slightly lighter tone. James Gunn. Was. James, I apologize. It is James a Sean Gunn, Gunn production. It is a Sean Gunn movie. That's true. He's Marty. I feel like I infected us with names. <laughs> but it was definitely missing his lightheartedness and his humor. It definitely would have done better with him behind the wheel, I feel. It would have been much better if John C. Riley had directed this movie like he was intended to. <laughs> Okay, so in this scene, I need you to come out with the accent. I, I got to work on a John C. Riley impression. <laughs> We've now established that the Scary Stuff podcast takes place in an alternate universe where A, John C. Riley is the ubiquitous John C. and has replaced John Gallagher Jr. and John C. McGinley. And it's also established, as we established in the previous episode, in our universe, Mike Kilty Williamson won Best Actor for his role in Species 2. <laughs> So I'm, I'm curious to see where the scary stuff timeline is going to be. The scary verse, man. It's the scary verse. So if we ever write a movie, it has to involve these facts. These are now proven scenarios in the timeline. Wait, in this timeline, is John McGinley and Walkard? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's Belko. Yeah, like I was saying, it felt like half an idea with a great cast and just it didn't work. It could have worked. Like, I don't even think the idea is that terrible. I just don't think they do anything interesting with the idea itself. They just make a dog pile on the rabbit kind of thing. And I, eh, it didn't have enough going for it to make it interesting. It very much felt like someone who worked in a cubicle farm at one point and was like, you know what? All I want to see is the validation that these people are assholes and should be shot. (laughs) That's that's it. You know, this is a movie. But like only three of them are assholes. So, I mean. You know, is that the experiment? <laughs> Finding out that only three of your co-workers that you think would kill everybody actually would kill everybody? 
Because we worked in tech, that number is much fucking higher. <laughs> you can make a good movie about office psychopaths, but this is a movie made for office psychopaths. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, that was my big issue with the movie, is it's just not really any characters I really care about. There's not a single person here I'm, like, rooting for. I mean, I guess there are a couple that I kind of want to die, but I don't even really care if they die or not, because I know they're going to die anyway. So it's really pointless. It's just pointless killing with nobody that I really want to watch. I was rooting for Michael Rooker and the security guard. So yes, I like Michael Rooker, and then he immediately fucking died. That ah, uh, still angered me. <laughs> Sorry, there was one character that. Oh yeah, I like the security guard. He wasn't too bad either, as he was reasonable. But yeah, big off those two within the first ten minutes of the action stories. Yeah. See, I I would appreciate Michael Rooker more in sort of the Danny mold, where he spends the whole movie like actively working on some plan to get them out of the goddamn building, but his plan ends with him finally finding some secret, like, cutting through this underground wall, finding this passage, getting to this random door, opening it and goes, I'm free! And then his head fucking explodes. You know? That, that would have, <laughs> <laughs> Even that would have been better for the ending he did get. <laughs> so here's a final question for everybody on this. What group do you think you would have gone in? Oh, I've been in Mike's group, absolutely. Oh, gosh. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'd have been trying to get signs up. I'd have been trying to calm people down. Actually, I probably wouldn't have been any group. I probably would have been the dude in the glasses who just hides in the freezer. Yeah, <laughs> who ends up getting taken out by John uh, John C. McGinley. Yep. It wasn't a bad plan outside of the fact that you know he didn't turn the freezer off and he didn't like move all the food out of the way. But... <laughs> <laughs> I can safely say this: I would not have been in the group. I was pointing a fucking gun at a propane tank. That much I can admit. <laughs> like, if I was with someone who did that, I'd be like, son, we are done. <laughs> this arrangement has ended. Good night. <laughs> and speaking of movies that divide people into groups, let's switch over to a movie that kicked off much less of a fuss than the Belko Experiment. This little discussed movie known as The Hunt. <laughs> Released in 2020. Late because people flip the fuck out. <laughs> it, well, it got delayed twice. I swear, people read like five words of this and were like, "What?" It's like hunting Republicans. This is a terrible film. It's like, dude, you have no idea what this movie's about. <laughs> it had already been delayed once because of um, it was going to be released like right after. I don't even remember which particular shooting it was because we had one relatively every month week day whatever let's not get into that but this kept getting delayed even after the president complained about it and then they finally released it and i think that's when it stopped being talked about because people had finally watched it well it didn't help either that it was released like march 13th of this year just as covid was kicking off right. so that definitely affected it drastically the box office so there weren't that many people who saw it to complain about it well also like the trailer played up on that because it's like the most talked about movie that nobody has ever seen like, it says that in the trailer. If you watch the trailer, you basically get the whole movie. There's no reason to watch the movie after watching the two-minute trailer. Well, there's there are one or two bits that are, I think are gold, but we'll get to those. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie is brought to you by Universal Studios, who are responsible for such movies as Oblivion, Mama, and The Thing prequel, which I absolutely <laughs> love and adore. This is also a really? Blue House production. I love The Thing. The Thing prequel? Yeah, the one with Mary Elizabeth Winston. Oh. <laughs> i'm looking forward to our thing episode we'll talk then i didn't know mary elizabeth winstead was in it i'm she listening is. yeah oh yeah that alone makes it a great film for me but <laughs> this is also brought to us by blue mouse productions who bring you things such things as prey cam and martyrs and it's also from director craig zobel 
who has done movies like Compliance and HomestarRunner.com, Everything Else, Volume 2. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a little bit of sense. That explains so much. Yes. He didn't have much to his credit, but I saw that and I got so excited. <laughs> yeah, he worked on Homestar Runner way back in the day. Yep, yep. And since then, he directed a movie called Compliance, which I liked. He directed Z for Zachariah, which I've been meaning to watch, but never got around to. And then he directed episodes of The Leftovers, which is how he met the writers of this movie, which would be Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes. Lindelof is also a writer from Lost, which, of course, you know, there are mixed feelings on that. <laughs> well, it also separates people into groups. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Nick Hughes was Lindelof's co-writer on some of the episodes of The Leftovers and also worked on Watchmen. Yep. But the initial, according to an interview with Nick Hughes, the initial concept of this came specifically from Lindelof. As while they were putting the finishing touches on the finale for The Leftovers, they were just spitballing ideas with each other. And Lindelof apparently said that he really wanted to do a Blumhouse movie that was an adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game. He thought that would be a natural fit for the Blumhouse model. But he only wanted to do it if they could come up with a really good reason for people being hunted. And... So now shortly hereafter, we'll get into what they landed on as far as the motivator for that. Well, the original title, there's some disagreements about what the original title of this movie was, because a lot of places reported it as Red State versus Blue State. Oh. And Bloomhouse and whatever keep denying that. Jason Bloom's original title for it was probably It's a Horror Movie. <laughs> <laughs> but also a social thriller. But yes, I read a uh, an interview with Jason Bloom where he was just like, no, that absolutely was never a chance of being the title. That's completely false. So who knows whether that's true or not. Yeah, look, I'm not going to dispute Jason Bloom on this because we keep talking about his movies and he seems like a pretty righteous dude. But I'd be willing to bet that that was actually the title. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably in the original script. and He just looked at it and was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also would sum up the juvenile, barely there politics that this movie has. Yeah. yeah. To call it red state versus blue state. Because for all of the controversy, this is South Park shit, not political satire or anything like this. This is just, everybody's bad. It's taking both sides of the political spectrum and going, what are the worst stereotypes we can think of for these people? And we're just going to take them to the nth level. <laughs> yeah, there's no politics to this. It's just people fucking spouting tweets as dialogue. See, this is funny. I usually watch these movies alone because I have a tendency to watch some awful shit. Wait, really? Yes. <laughs> but this time, my wife Hannah actually stayed up and watched this one with me. And she's like, it's like a movie written about the comment section of a, <laughs> of a political forum. <laughs> it's not actually satire of anything real. It's satire of the comment section. <laughs> yeah, it's just doofy. Yeah, it's I'll say this up front instead of saying it at the end. But this is kind of the movie for me in a nutshell. This is the Ready Player One of political satire. Yep. Wow, yeah. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Now, when I say that, I haven't seen the movie, I haven't seen the Spielberg adaptation, but I'm going based on the book. And what I mean by that, in this is a movie which is just every single line has to be a reference to something, and it's just dumping a ton of political and referential shit in there that doesn't really work in juxtaposition with each other, and it's None of it's that funny, I no, would argue. No. There are bits of this movie that made me laugh, but scant, but there are a couple. But it's mainly just a bunch of references stuck together. And just because you put a bunch of references in one place, that's not humor. 
having this right wing character joke about I have a podcast and conspiracy theories. It's you know, it's it's just shit. You just put a bunch of shit in the movie. Well, see, I thought the most accurate portrayal was that of podcasters in this film. Well, yeah. (laughs) We were well represented, yeah. (laughs) Unreasonable, belligerent, not well cleaned. I think that describes us. We'll change our avatar on our Instagram and Twitter feeds to the Ethan Suplee character when we put this episode. (laughs) So before I get off too much on the concept of it, let's get into the, the movie itself. We open with a character who we only see from behind, who is thumbing through a group chat on her cell phone in which one of the characters is making reference to, I've got something to show you, but you you can't tell anybody. Are you ready for it? Here it is. And it's the internet meme of a turtle fucking a shoe that went around. (laughs) And all we're seeing during this whole thing is just messages bounce back and forth. LOL, whatever, whatever, whatever. Then one of the people in the chat drops a reference to, did you hear what the rat fucker in chief said this week? And then there's, you know, derisive comments. Day equals ruined. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the derisive <laughs> yeah. comments. And then there is a reference to, I really want to go up to the manor and just shoot some, I forget what term. Uh, they deplorables. Use. No, that's they right. They say deplorables. Yep. And everyone then jumps in with, you know, oh, you're not supposed to talk about that, LOL. And... <laughs> Then it kind of trails off, and we cut to an airplane with this mysterious douchebag character who's who's being a vague prick to the flight attendant. His name is Richard. He's played by Glenn Howerton, a goddamn treasure. I love him. <laughs> he's been in The Strangers. He's been in Crank. And, of course, he's probably most well-known from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's being a vague prick to a flight attendant and just being you know, vaguely pompous. And I feel like this movie told you everything you needed to know within those first couple of minutes. Pretty much, yeah. You know, here's this chat that sounds like what people think liberals' chats are like. And then here's this rich guy. He's like, oh, yes, have you ever had caviar? <laughs> caviar is delicious. <laughs> Like, just say, I'm a rich guy, rich guy, and then rich guy. (laughs) Save the whales, you know? He's a raging douchebag to the point it's just comedy. He's a cartoon character. So as he's being a pompous dick to this flight attendant, a apparently drugged individual staggers in from the back of the plane. Everyone in the front (laughs) of the plane starts to panic. I love this. Because in the credits, he is referred to as Randy. Randy. There's like a, like five E's and three A's because that's how he says his name. <laughs> Which is also how I want to start referring to friend of the podcast, Randy. As in, in, Randy. In, hi, Randy. <laughs> he's based on the way he says his name and the way he moves about. He's apparently been drugged. One of the characters wakes up their associate, who's a doctor, who tries to calm Randy down. And gets him down onto the floor, gets a towel under him, and then borrows somebody's pen and jabs him in an artery in his throat. <laughs> Gives him the straight up gross point blank, man. Yeah. Dude, it was great. Yep. Dude, we're not even there yet because that's what we're here for, right? Yeah, he said, hey, he woke up too early. And as a doctor, he apparently sucks at hitting a major artery because the guy's still able to kick around for a pretty good while after getting stabbed in the throat. He's able to grab a hold of a champagne bottle and knocks the doctor for a loop. And then we see who we assume is our mysterious character from the opening. Uh, this woman comes from the front of the plane. Again, we're only seeing her from behind. Comes out, grabs a stiletto-heeled shoe from a alcove in the hallway, and stabs Randy in the eye. 
and we get our first Animal Farm quote, where she has the line, no sentimentality, comrade, war is war. And she heads back to the front of the plane, and Randy's body is taken into the back. And as the camera tracks over Randy's now-deceased body, it tracks on to Emma Roberts. Emma Roberts from Scream 4, American Horror Story, and Scream Queens. She likes to be in horror. I am a fan of Emma Roberts. She's a good job. I like her in kind of everything I've seen. Like, I liked her on uh, American Horror Story. She's and very versatile. Just everything she's in. And boy, is she f- fucking wasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Disagree. I disagree. I think the point she was pulled in for, she did perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's fine, but here's the thing. It's essentially stunt casting, but she's not really famous enough to be really stunt cast. So, like, I like what they did with her. I like the whole scene. I like how it plays out. I like everything they do with her. I'm just saying, it didn't matter that it was Emma Roberts. I think she's absolutely perfect, because I think she is strong enough and well-known enough that you could see her as leading woman material. Like, the problem is this. For what they did to actually work... You need to have never seen the trailer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or the poster, which is nothing but Betty Gilpin's face. Yeah. Yes. If you had never seen the trailer or any of the posters and went in blind, this shtick works perfect. Because I'm just going to spoil it now. So basically, Emma Roberts is the one that they kind of follow for the next five, ten minutes. And she wakes up. She's gagged. And she's not the only one's gagged. Lots of people there. But before we get into too much detail, that I'll just say... She's set up, and it looks like she's going to be the person you follow from this movie. She's going to be the last girl. She's going to be doing the fight she can. She's going to stand tall. And she gets to the one guy who's going to show her how to use a gun. And while they're taking cover and they're getting ready to go, her head gets blown right the fuck off. It's great. (laughs) It's just like, whoa, did not see that coming. Yeah, it gets blown off right in front of uh, Green Arrow from Smallville. That's right. And they call him the trucker in this. Another person who's not famous enough to be stunt cast. <laughs> it's Blumhouse budget stunt casting, yeah. But now it's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I was wrong. He's the lead character. We're going to follow him. And he goes, and he finds this woman stuck in a punji trap, and he gets her out, and they step on a goddamn landmine, and they both blow the fuck up! <laughs> it's just like, holy shit! <laughs> and then Ike Barinholtz shows up, and without going into too much detail, you stay with him long enough, you're like, okay, okay, th- those were good tricks, you got me. Obviously, we're following Ike now, and I actually believed it. They got me. I'm like, okay, good with it, Ike. And no, Ike is not the guy <laughs> you're meant to follow in this movie. <laughs> Three times they get you, and they do a great job with that. And that was maybe the most gold. No, no, sorry. Second most gold part of this whole movie. But I thought it was a lot See, of See, I would disagree with a lot of what you said, because it introduced, as soon as Emma Roberts wakes up, the first person she sees is Betty Gilpin. Yep. And Betty Gilpin is doing something that looks smart. Yeah. And then they pan away from her. So the second that Emma Roberts dies, you already should know, because the movie has told you that the other people it's going to follow are going to be the same trick. Ah, uh, yes, no. And again, I liked it, but it, you can only get away with that once after you've already established that somebody knows what they're doing. I, I will agree that I feel it's a little cheapened by introducing Betty Gilpin that soon and showing that she's clever. I'm just saying it's fun with Emma Roberts and I liked what they did and I liked how they did that. But they tried to do it three times. It only worked once. Well, no, because it was just funny the next two. Everybody times. who showed up next, I expected to somehow get connected to Emma Roberts. That was my feeling. Like with the Ike Barinholtz, I was like, oh, the two people he's with, I think will go quick, but he'll then get together with Betty Gilpin and move forward from there. Like I actually thought he had a chance. <laughs> like, they, they got me. Wait, he's the dude that was on the episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine where he plays the kid's dad. 
I don't recall. I know he was on the Mindy Project. I know he's hilarious as hell. He's done a lot of great work. I, I only know him from that Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. Yeah, Matt TV's where he got his start. But yeah, he's been a, a that guy actor in a lot. He's started to get more lead roles recently. Yeah, he was in Suicide Squad. Because he makes it all the way to the gas station. Yes. All right, so let's just wrap up the field real quick. So yeah, they all wake up in the field. They're all gagged. There's this big giant crate. They open the crate. It's got all this weaponry in it. They pull it out. They find these keys. They get the gags off everybody. Everybody starts trying to get some weapons. Then they start getting shot out. Everybody scatters. Some people get shot. Some people get blown up. And then some people make it to the gas station, which they've clearly is the next step they have to go to. The only way they can get away from what's happening is this one fence. They come over the fence and they go to the gas station for help. The mom and pop shop. Yeah. The fence is where we're introduced to one of my favorite side characters and the source of the quote I used at the opening of what's the plan, Khaki Man, which is a character who is credited as Vanilla Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't write down the, the actor's name, but Jake, he's a folk singer. Sturgill Simpson. Yeah. He's an actual musician. It was weird. He's not like a rapper or anything. He's, you know, essentially all country. And he's a pretty good musician, pretty famous, too. So he doesn't get much of a much play in this but it's kind of funny seeing him in that situation yeah it's a very tiny role so but it's not not knowing who he was initially i think he was he's very fun in a very 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 brief part when i saw it i had a minute you know he's like wait 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 and then looked it up and like wait 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 (laughs) what the hell (laughs) did you fall down another rabbit hole of weird music there jake He's not that weird. I mean, he's he's about as famous a musician as Emma Roberts is as an actor. Okay. So he's equal stunt casting to Emma Roberts in Nick's world. <laughs> Just saying. And he is part Nick's making a face at me. We don't record video for that reason. <laughs> and he is part of the three person group led by Ike Barinholtz, who makes it to this gas station, which is crewed by an apparent husband wife pair. The wife who is played by Amy Madigan. Yes. Fucking Streets of Fire and Uncle Buck. <laughs> She's amazing. Oh, and uh, and uh, fuck the Kevin Costner movie, uh, Field of Dreams. Yeah, but Uncle Buck. I love Uncle Buck. <laughs> I, I admit, Uncle Buck's oh, the best. Oh yeah, she was. That was the wife from. I hadn't even thought. She's of that. been in a shit ton of stuff, but yeah. So they are attending this gas station in the middle of nowhere. Ike Barinholtz's crew breaks in, starts to try and gather supplies, try and gather their bearings. No, I'm sorry to interject. I just realized we missed one of the funnier deaths. So at some point, one of the guys turns around, decides he's going to take on uh, the people who are fighting them. And he gets one arrow and then another arrow, and then he finally falls to the ground. And then this goddamn grenade falls out, kind of like overkill. Like, oh, we're going to blow him up too. And he just sits there, and all of a sudden you hear someone go, Pull the fucking pin? What? Oh, god damn it. And then the second grenade shows up next to it. I'm like, what the hell? That might have been my favorite line in the movie right before that. Yeah. When the arrow goes in, he goes, what is this Avatar shit? <laughs> I will admit I busted up laughing at that. I am not an Avatar fan, and that was funny. So yeah, back to the gas station. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> and in ready player one fashion it's mentioned but serves no purpose for it being mentioned yeah ding yes (laughs) so this couple who runs this gas station they engage ike barinholtz in conversation they start to be really vague on some details something else is clearly going on amy madigan drops another animal farm reference with the quote will there be sugar after the rebellion and at this point, we realize that uh, one of the characters in the three-person group who's been eating snowballs ravenously at the back of the shop begins to choke because they've apparently been poisoned. Ike Barinholtz, who, like Nick mentioned, had kind of been set up as a potential protagonist, gets shot in the gut and is killed instantly. 
And then the Vanilla Ice character is also killed. He's gassed to death at the back of the shop. So the couple who run the gas station engage in conversation. <laughs> I like the one guy as he's dying. He's like, go to hell. And Pop's like, I don't believe in hell. And climate change is real. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more of the uh, Ready Player One random references to stupid uh, things liberals and conservatives say kind of feel of this. Did you notice it was on the TV as well? Yes. yes. Yeah, it was a polar bear. It was the... What was it climate change is fake or studies show that climate change is fake or some, some <laughs> goofy shit like that it was it was like the faux fox channel yeah yes <laughs> yeah i essentially hated everything that happened right after that until betty gilpin shows up because they have this conversation uh. that's the stupidest fucking conversation <laughs> uh-huh. and it's it's so over the top it's not even parody it's like we keep talking about it. it's like what i guess maybe conservative people imagine liberal people sound like kind of like vice versa it's how liberal people met but it's just stupid like oh that's poison oh it's got sugar in it oh jesus christ (laughs) it's taken the concept of what the political parties are but to such an extreme that they're just cartoons they're not based in reality on any level it's stripping out anything interesting nuance or any kind of thing to say and, and like in ready player one it's just stating things and moving on and again it's just satire of the comment section you know it's the most extreme shit people yeah. throw in there but doesn't mean that's who they are i just feel like calling it satire is giving it too much credit yes <laughs> it's it's a mockery it's not satire it's a mockery yeah it's it's just it's south park kind of humor even slightly less witty than that is how i would put it yeah it's kind of insulting to even call it south park this doesn't hit the mark very often it's that kind of non-denominational you know, caring or thinking about anything is good or bad is what's stupid. Mm. So it's it's really rooted in that kind of, I don't want to call it nihilism. It's not really nihilism, but uh, edgelord nonsense. So this is where we really get to meet Betty Gilpin, the character. One of the saving graces of the movie. Yeah, she's amazing. She comes to the store and she's clearly kind of a little out of sorts and a little awkward and asks for some smokes. Ask what state is this? And they say, you're in the glorious state of Arkansas. And this is where they go. There was clearly an alternate scene for this. Because again, the trailer gives away a lot and is different. And that in the trailer, it implies that she figures out that they're on board with the problem because she had seen the license plates and that they're clearly not even in America. So if these people say they're from Arkansas, they're part of the problem and they're an issue. Whereas here, she asked for a pack of smokes they charge her like nine something. They give her like 10 and change back. And she goes, in Arkansas, smokes only cost six bucks, bitch. You done fucked up. And then she shoots them on. She fights them, takes the gun and shoots them. I'm like, that's fucking hilarious and ridiculous at the same time. Yeah, Betty Gilpin is, I would say, one of the saving graces of this film in her ability to kind of spin straw to gold a little bit with the dialogue. And she does have some legitimately good lines in this. But she's so dedicated to the performance, and she's just so much fun to watch. Absolutely. She really carries a lot of the film. I was first introduced to her in her work with the show Elementary, and I've really enjoyed her in Glow. Glow was where I first took note of her, and yeah, she's phenomenal in that. I'm looking forward to seeing her in the new Grudge. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting to that at some point. <laughs> I, I still don't think they should have fucking made it, but I'm going to watch it. <laughs> it's the grudge made by the dude who made eyes of my mother it's gonna be fascinating it's the same movie they're not changing it that's that i don't <laughs> get it it's like the remake of psycho where they played it beat for fucking beat i'm like why <laughs> <laughs> i kind of get why they tried to do that with psycho just uh, as an experiment i don't know why they made it into a movie anybody would want to see 
it's, uh, but I don't know. I didn't like the grudge to begin with, so I I don't oh, know. I love the grudge. I did like Eyes of Our Mother, at least more than Eric. Oh god, Eyes of Mother is so fucking brutal. <laughs> oh my god, it hurt watching. It, I, I'll admit, Eyes of Mother hurt me. <laughs> it's an experience, yeah. It's, yeah. it's something. Yeah. It's a rough ride. So after Betty Gilpin guns down the couple in the gas station, she then discovers that the Arkansas plates on the truck out front are fake. A drone shows up. She takes cover before she's seen by the drone. The drone is then shot by someone off camera. Who is titled as Shut the Fuck Up, Gary. Yes. <laughs> in the credits, he's, he's called Shut the Fuck Up, Gary. <laughs> Played by Ethan Suplee. Who I've loved ever since uh, everything Kevin Smith and My Name is Earl show. He's fantastic mm. in that. See, what I liked about him, and I, I always like him a lot, is that this was the logical endgame for his character from My Name is Earl. <laughs> <laughs> like, if they had called him Randy in this, I'd have been like, yes, absolutely. absolutely. This makes sense. <laughs> He used some of Earl's, you know, lottery money, whatever was left over there at the end. I forget how it ends if he marries the... the I don't remember. I forget where he is at the end of it. But anyway, you can see him starting a podcast and diving into like QAnon and <laughs> Mannergate, as this is all called. So it made so much sense for him to be in this and for him to be playing what, based on all of his roles, you could only say is himself. <laughs> and I don't mean that. I'm sure he is a wonderful human being, but he plays this role over and yes. over and over and over again. But then, And he's very good at it. This whole scene here, after we are introduced to uh, Gary, comes into the most nonsensical scene in the entire movie, which is the train scene. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my God. This is like framing my number one moment of the whole film. Oh, yes, I lost my it shit it does. Here. But at the same time, it's the most nonsensical thing. Oh, no. It makes no sense whatsoever. So you have Usman Ally. Before we get there, I just want to say one thing. So when she's leaving the supermarket after she's killed people, a song starts playing. Did anybody look at that or think about that at all? Besides me, who's second? Okay. Nobody cares about that but you, Jake. <laughs> so well it's it's stuck out to me because in the trailer it's the marshall tucker band and the other song you in none of the songs you get in this they're all either classical or kind of earthier songs you know you get down, memphis bayou i forget what there's there's only like four songs in the whole movie but they're all either like r&b country or classical except for this which is a post-punk song by the raincoats it's called fairy tale and supermarket the raincoats were a post-punk band that developed after seeing the slits in the 70s and they were around for a good long time in fact paul Mollov, the drummer for the slits eventually joined them and it was just interesting because it's just this weird post-punk song that shows up in this movie that has nothing to do with any of that and none of the other music is even close to this <laughs> so it jumped out at me and it seemed like a strange choice and I honestly think the only reason it was in there is because it was called Fairy Tale in the Supermarket. Like, I think they said the title, fine, we'll go with that. And also, it's a good song. And it made me more disappointed that the Marshall Tucker Band, which is all over the trailer, was not in the actual movie. But anyway, moving on. Yeah, and before we get into the the only other bit before the train sequence worth noting, and again, pro folks probably realize this if you're listening to this podcast, but this is the point in the movie where we get explicitly what the premise is. And there was the reference to Manor Gate earlier. 
is the Ethan Suplee character fills us in on Mannergate, which is this conspiracy theory that, quote, every year these liberal elites, you know, the globalist cucks who run the deep state, end quote, <laughs> round up people of a right wing bent and hunt them for sport. So presumably <laughs> that is then the reason that all these characters have been brought together. So that's the other big nugget of information we get right before they hop on the train. Yeah, so they run over these train tracks and Crystal or Betty Gilpin, she puts her ear down. Oh, first she pops a squat and takes a piss because, you know, practical reasons. You gotta yourself That's up. where we get the shut the fuck up Gary moment. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> After which she notices the ground's probably starting to vibrate, goes over to the train tracks, notices that there's a train coming, at which point they do a classic run and jump onto the train. At which point, when they get onto this train, they notice that there are some other people on here. And Ethan Supley, or shut the fuck up, Gary, <laughs> says, oh, these are all crisis actors. Crisis actors. You're not real. You're crisis <laughs> yeah. actors. I lost my shit on that. Uh, that was great. To be fair, that makes more sense than the actual explanation for how those all plays. Out. Yes. <laughs> I also like him. Gary, he's holding a baby. There's crisis babies. Yes. <laughs> there are some great lines in there. But just the whole concept of it, because it turns out that. Oh, wait, wait. The, the reveal is priceless. Yes. So the train is stopped by the military. Crystal's like, put your gun away. He's like, what? He goes, if you see you with guns, they're going to fucking kill you. Just put the weapons away. So Gary and Crystal are now unarmed and they get off the train with the immigrants. And Gary is immediately trying to tell them, look, these are crisis actors. We know this. We're Americans. You know, just trust us. Get us some help. And This is where we get the podcast line. He says, I have a podcast. I've been exposing these people. Right, right. At which point, the military guy takes most of the immigrants away, and then the one, the one father-looking type just turns goes, I don't think they believe you, Gary. I just <laughs> lost my shit. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> it's, in the credits, he's, <laughs> he's listed as Crisis Actor Mike. <laughs> Crisis Mike. Crisis Mike. I'm like, oh my god. But you're right. This is the most improbable part of the whole film because he's not a crisis actor. He's actually one of the rich assholes. He's one of the damn hunters. Yeah, it makes sense that they got corralled to the gas station. That made sense as a second jump. But man, if I was that guy, I would never have taken that job. (laughs) He's like, what are the chances they decide to get on the train to escape? He might have just wasted his entire weekend trying to hunt these people. Just hanging out with an immigrant family and doing jack shit else. You know, it's like, it makes a long no sense. shot, dude. It was a real long shot. It's like, they have to be going by this train tracks in the five fucking minutes that we're going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not a good plan. It was a terrible idea. No, it ends up being a quite terrible plan because he meets his end when, <laughs> after he's trying to calm down Ethan Suplee's character and get him to... <laughs> Just check his anger for a minute. Ethan Suplee drops a goddamn grenade in his pants and runs the fuck off. And then Crisis Mike explodes. I I will say this, though. As improbable as it is, as stupid as the idea was, the fact that no one would ever think this was a good idea and pull it off, the fact it set up him going, I don't think they believe you, Gary. I will hands down defend (laughs) to the end because I just, it was so funny. It's a great line, (laughs) but the more you think about it, like the less any of it makes sense. That makes no sense. You know, all right, so he's actually hunting them. Why is he pretending to be an immigrant and not just standing there with a gun when they get on the fucking train? Yeah. Like, think about it. What's the possible end game of him pretending he's an immigrant? Didn't he actually say I embedded myself with these immigrants yeah. a week ago? Like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what the hell? This is such a goddamn long shot on every level. 
It makes no sense at all. Even if they had thought of this eventuality, what could possibly be the plan? No plan. What could possibly be the plan? No, logically, it's bullshit. But the, but the fact that they did it to set up the one joke, I have to give them a pass. Because I hurt my sides laughing at that. I just... It, it was one of those where my brain kept record scratching. Just in sequence. <laughs> and like, normally I can forgive this kind of shit, but this movie was dumb enough in everything it did. But vaguely logical... If you take the idea that the people who are running this game are very, very stupid. And they are. And they are. And they say that they're stupid. Yeah. But even stupid people would, you would, you would have to work hard to come up with anything <laughs> that would come out of this particular plan. At the end of the movie, you really learn that there are only two smart people in the whole film. You got Crystal on the one side and Athene on the other. They're the no, only no, no. ones who really are worth it. There's one smart person because Athena <laughs> is not smart. No, she no, is no. Not. she's smart. She's crazy. She's crazy. She's not smart. I think she's smart, but I think she makes bad decisions because she's crazy. That's what stupid means. <laughs> That's not stupid. <laughs> Disagree. Disagree. She's motivated and determined. I'll give her that. But no, she's not smart. There's nothing she does that's smart. Well, no, that's not true. Making a grilled cheese sandwich Gruyere cheese is smart. Yeah. Because that's delicious. I was going to say she has some great cooking tips. Yeah, that's the and she uses yeah, yeah. the grease cover on top of it. It's yeah. smart stuff. But that's the only smart shit she does. <laughs> Their whole plan is dumb. Even grabbing the shoe to kill Randy is not really particularly smart when you know they have an arsenal on the fucking plane. You don't want to be shooting bullets in a plane. If you pierce the hull, you lose cabin pressure. And, they also and have can, knives. No, no, guns are a terrible idea on a plane. They also have knives. <laughs> Nick's like, trust me, I learned from experience. <laughs> <laughs> I can't discuss that. But anyway... <laughs> But no, I mean, it's like she grabbed the nearest thing to her. Instead of going back to get weaponry, she grabbed the nearest thing she had. She was resourceful, quick on her feet, and it worked. So I'm not going to argue with that. The weirdest things bother you and don't bother you. One of these days I'm going to try and... I'm going to watch these movies, and I'm just going to try and fucking predict the shit that you like and don't like. Because I am I am never even close to getting what bothers you and what doesn't bother you. The only thing I can guarantee for sure is if there's a sequel to Hunt and they somehow break some established rule <laughs> somewhere. That I would understand. But yeah, no, okay. I, I can't figure it out. Here's the game. Anyway. No, no. Here's the game. Here's what we're going to do next time. Next time we record, you are going to show up with two no, pieces no, of the, paper. The movie's next, no, 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 no. The next movie are too good. <laughs> it's got to be the next one after that. It doesn't matter what movie you pick, but you're going to have at least two pieces of paper. One's going to be... Nick totally loved this, and Nick totally hated that. You have to have them ready and written before we record. And when we hit those moments, you hold the piece of paper up, and we see how I did. <laughs> That's why it can't be the next episode, because there's nothing in those movies you totally hate. Yeah, it'll be nine. It wouldn't work for eight, but it'll work for nine. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. If there is stuff in those movies you hated, we're going to have words. <laughs> No, I expect to be very happy with the next episode, but there's almost always one thing that catches me. Just like, ah, logically, it's a problem for me, but we'll get to that next episode. But before then... So, yeah, so now they're captured by the military and taken to the immigrant camp. Yeah, taken to the immigrant camp, and the military is talking to Crystal, the Betty Gilpin character. They established that she's from Mississippi. The military representative asks, you you know Don? And she says, who's Don? She says, bring Don. And now we're introduced to... Don, played by Wayne Duvall, who is another actor I quite liked in this movie. And funnily enough, the character is named Don because it was originally supposed to be played by Don Johnson. 
<laughs> but they ended up casting him in Watchmen instead, so they ended up casting a different actor for this movie. And I thought Wayne Duvall did a did a pretty nice job with this character. He did a good job. Yeah. I I actually like I like I said, are you being hunted? And she's like, What? Are you being hunted like Don? She's like, Don who? And they bring Don out. She's like, Yeah, I'm being hunted like Don. <laughs> Yeah, so Don and her commiserate about their situation. Don's very excited. He's like, we're going to be on Hannity, you and me. And <laughs> Which, again, is such a generic fucking line, but his delivery of it is pretty good. Yep. But then we get one of the bits of the movie that actually made me quite excited, which is when Macon fucking Blair shows up as the uh, purportedly a U.S. representative who's supposed to take them back home, picks them up and starts asking these sort of roundabout questions and hypotheticals about why they're in the situation that they're in and i love this scene and you know so, well, there's got to be some reason they kidnapped you right and don's just spouting angry bullshit and crystal catches on very quickly she does this great move this is one of the rare bits in the movie that made me laugh out loud which is as she's realized that there's more to the making blair character that meets the eyes she grabs a hold of the oh shit handle in the passenger side seat and just makes this grimace and makes this uh, noise as she just pivots 90 degrees. It's this great look. It's so funny. Like, oh, here we go. <laughs> and it gives him a double stomp to the shoulder, and he goes flying right out of the vehicle. And at which point, she hops into the driver's seat and backs over his ass. Yep. Oh, that, that, I enjoyed that kill. It's brutal. And Don is in a panic at this point. He's like, oh, what the fuck? Why'd you kill him? And she pops the trunk, and we see... The Ethan Suplee character who ran off earlier is in the trunk with a knife in his forehead. Yeah, Don's like, we could have at least gotten some questions out of him. Why'd you have to kill him? Which leads up to something later. It's important to note now. Yeah. <laughs> I like her line right after that, though, because she said, they're trying to kill me. I don't give a shit why. Yeah. So you at least get her motivation, which is she just wants to live. Yep. Which is why she's pretty much the only smart character in this entire movie. And then they make a profoundly stupid decision. Well, they have the radio and they have now this money. They have a map. They know where everyone is. And they're trying to figure out if these people are smart pretending to be idiots or idiots pretending to be smart. <laughs> and yeah, they can either run or take the battle to them. And then we also get the closest thing to a social commentary in the whole movie here with her jackrabbit and the box turtle story. That was really disturbing. <laughs> and insane. The whole story is insane. Yes. <laughs> It's your typical, you know, rabbit in the hare story where, you know, the rabbit falls asleep and the hare wins. But that ending, holy shit. <laughs> I just like Don's response. Your mother told you that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they head back. Like Nick mentioned, they decide to take the fight to their captors. And at which point it cuts back to the battleground where everything started. And we're inside this pillbox location. With, sure enough, it's a series of, as Eason Suplee said, the quote-unquote liberal elites who are, in fact, hunting these people. And they are exchanging just, again, every single line of dialogue they toss back and forth is a generic quip of some variety that is as some political reference of some sort. But one thing in the sequence I thought was legitimately funny is they have hired an outside military contractor to train them and to be their guy. Sergeant Dale. Sergeant Dale. And the running joke in the sequence is that he was the military advisor on the Bruce Willis movie, Tears of the Sun, yeah. <laughs> which which I've seen. <laughs> and I, I thought that was very clever, just this totally random, you know, oh yeah, Tears of the Sun. But I decided, I said, wait a minute, is there any crossover? So I cross-referenced the crew of the hunt with the crew of Tears of the Sun 
And there's a match. <laughs> Howard Fannin. He was a weapons associate on Tears of the Sun, and he was the armorer on The Hunt. So there is indeed someone who worked on The Hunt who worked on Tears of the Sun. <laughs> it just it seemed like such a random movie to make fun of in this. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? Do you remember the movie Paul? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which spends all this time setting up a fucking Lorenzo Zoyle joke. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've seen that movie a bunch, and every time I'm like, how can this just have led to a Lorenzo's oil joke? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it that made me think of with this. Tears of this. Why are they making fun of Tears of the Sun? <laughs> like, of all things. Yeah, that made me chuckle. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It just surprised me, and then I couldn't figure it out. And as they exchange just, you know, generic political dialogue, then Betty Gilpin breaks in, shoots a guy in the head and has a very nonchalant, hey, bitch, as she begins to gun down everyone in the room. (laughs) And she then guns down everybody except the military advisor who's been wounded but isn't dead. I did like the one scene where she aims the rifle at the doctor and he's smart enough to pull the clip from it. But he completely misses the fact there's still one in the goddamn chamber and it's like, (laughs) I thought that was nice. That was good. And you have the dumb feminism joke right there where she's like, do you think you should live just because you're a woman? And then she says no, and then she kills her. So, Oh, uh, yeah. Well, just before that, she's like, Don, do you want to ask her any questions? He's like, what? You wanted to ask the other guy questions? Do you want to ask her any questions? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> it's like, that's right. <laughs> Don't give me shit if you have nothing to bring to the table, Don. Right? <laughs> It also has the scene where they kill the pig, and they're way sadder about killing the pig than killing any of the people in the movie. Well, the pig's an innocent. That felt, that felt, that felt true to life. Yeah, no, it, it did, honestly. But it's Again, still... it's the cartoon version of them. It's A, yeah. they're probably all vegetarians, and B, it's an innocent. You know, it, it, there was no reason to harm it. <laughs> but yeah, she beats up the sergeant and then interrogates him. Yeah, interrogates him, and also during the sequence, we hear the voice of who we've soon find out is Athena, who's the character we saw in the very opening and who killed Randy with the stiletto shoe. And she begins talking over the radio and is implying via the radio conversation that Don is a member of their party and saying, you know, Don, Don, did you kill her yet? And coaxes Betty Gilpin and Don into a standoff, which results in Don getting shot. And following that, Betty Gilpin picks up the radio and tells Athena Don's dead. And Athena's response is, well, then you better come get me, shouldn't you? And Crystal, the Betty Gilpin character, has a brief exchange with the military advisor. who tells Crystal that Athena's been training for this for eight months. So Crystal says, thanks for the information, kills the advisor. And then we fade into a flashback. That's also where we learn that the Crystal character spent some time in Afghanistan. Yes, yes. that she's military. Yep. They also, it has to be... You know, why are you going to do this? And she just, the, the little things like, well, I'm kind of, and, you know. <laughs> He's like, I can go home and, and deal with that there, or I can deal with this now and then go home. <laughs> no, she said, I could go home and I can't really do that since I work at a rental car company. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to, so I'm going to do this here. <laughs> I just like when she does that. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, And I can't be "Mm," there, so. Then we fade into the flashback where we meet Athena, who was played by Hilary Swank. Who they've kept secret this entire movie for no reason whatsoever. Another bit of supposed to be a little bit of a vague bait and switch, kind of like the sort of maybe protagonists at the opening who keep getting knocked off. 
with Athena. They kept this character in the shadows so we could hear her, but not see her. But now we see it's Hilary Swank, who is a business executive for a major company. And we find out that this sequence takes place after the opening of the movie, which was the group chat sequence, which made reference to Mannergate and going out and hunting, quote unquote, deplorables. And we find out that the person who made that statement was an associate of hers named Martin. Martin, who worked for this company, his account was hacked and a whole bunch of information got out there. They cite explicitly it was lots of sexual. Yeah. Extramarital communications yeah, yeah. got out there. Yeah. But one of the things that got out was a transcript of this tech conversation. And Athena is stating very strongly and, and honestly that it was a joke, but it's already leaked to the Internet and therefore conspiracy wingnuts are already taking it in weird directions. And as a result of this, Martin is forced to leave the company. And Athena's crushed by this and decides to take what was originally a joke and make it reality. Hence the sequence we have. And then we also get a brief sequence of her training while the group of her friends are reviewing the potential candidates for folks will be hunted. This is very much a revenge montage where they're like, okay, fine. This is what you want us to be. This is what we'll be. Yeah, you find out that I think she actually uh, has to step down. All the other characters that are involved have to like, either step down from organizations or in some way or another, yep. they're all affected in some way by this false rumor. Mm -hmm. So that's supposed to be, you know, the motive. Which is apparently reason enough to kill a dozen people. But, you know, hey. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so after the flashback, we get Crystal, the Betty Gilpin character, approaching this lush manor. And she speaks to Athena via the, the speaker at the front of it's it. It's not a manor. It's just a three-bedroom house is the line we get later. Well, no, no. The three-bedroom house was in Vermont. This is different. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's right. That's right. I was referring to her. She said, you have a manor in Vermont. And it's a three-bedroom house. It's not a manor. <laughs> Athena speaks to Crystal via the front gate and tells her, look, the whole area you're in is rigged with explosives. So I could kill you now, but just go ahead and come on in and let's talk. So then we get the aforementioned sequence that Jake made reference to of, of Athena in the kitchen, waxing on about making grilled cheese sandwiches with Gruyere. And she basically relays all the information that we just went over initially about her motivations for doing this and taking what was a joke and turning it into reality. This is where she also has the line where Crystal refers to Athena as crazy. And Athena's response is, yeah, I'm crazy. But if you know you're crazy, that means you're not crazy. It's such a goofy conversation. Yes. And they also explicitly establish here that Crystal, Betty Gilpin's character, was the main target, or as Athena referred to her, that's our snowball, because she was the person with the handle of Justice for Y'all, who was one of their primary targets, one of the main folks who propagated this Mannergate rumor. And according to Crystal, they got the wrong person. There's someone who has her exact same name in her exact same town, and they just happen to get the wrong crystal. Spells it with an E. It's funny she says that because when you actually see her chat room picture, it's not a selfie. It's someone else taking a picture of her and giving her the finger at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so it could very much be like possible that this other crystal just like took a picture of flipping her off and made that her avatar. <laughs> <laughs> I just I like the part of this conversation where she says, you know, and people thought that we were hunting people. She's like, but. You are. You are. Like, but we weren't. Says, but you're hunting me. <laughs> it's like, but you made me do this. Did I? <laughs> they have a vaguely humorous exchange where they, again, fill in all the missing bit of exposition. And then it breaks out into what Damon Lindelof referred to in the script, apparently, as 
John Wick a la a Nancy Myers movie. Which is so awful on so many levels. I mean, oh my fucking god. For starters, it is not a John Wick fight. It's just not. John Wick fights are much more elegant and smooth and almost like a dance. This is just people fighting. People fighting does not a John Wick movie make. Not to mention the Nancy Myers reference. Just because they're women doesn't mean it's a Nancy Myers movie. It's just sexist and wrong on every goddamn level. Terrible description of the movie. Jake, is that the, uh, this was not the thing you thought Nick was going to <laughs> throw his hand flag down on? I just took the Nancy Myers thing to be because they were in a kitchen. Because all Nancy Myers films have big, expensive kitchens. But that misses the point of the Nancy Myers films. It's just. Ah! They talk about shit like making fucking Gruyere grilled cheese sandwiches. That's the kind of stuff I associate with Nancy Myers films. <laughs> no. Not the fight, but... It's the kind of way an idiot describes this movie. That's all I'm going to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a sexist idiot. Okay. <laughs> but there are some worthwhile bits in the fight sequence. There's some very good stunts in it. There's one wince-inducing bit I like that I hadn't seen before, which is when they're wrangling over a dual-barreled shotgun. Betty Gilpin's character gets her forearm pinched in the... Oh, yeah. That was painful. And then we actually get, and it's such a simple joke, but it was actually probably my biggest laugh of the movie, which is during the fight, they're constantly going through glass in one variety, going yes. through <laughs> tables, going through windows, whatever. They end up going through this glass to the porch outside, and then they begin this fist fight, and the camera is inside tracking them from outside, so it's just tracking them across as they go past window to window. And when well done. And when they get to this glass doorway to go back into the kitchen, Crystal is rearing to throw Athena back through this through this glass door. And Athena plants her arms in the door and just says, No more glass! And then opens it and walks in. And it's a it's a very simple thing, but it's so well framed and Hilary Swank is so forceful in the delivery. It was incredibly that well was done. probably my biggest laugh of the movie. So they continue to fight. I believe Athena's killed with, I think it's a food processor blade? Well, it's a food processor blade that Athena stabs Crystal with, and then Crystal uses the other side of the blade to stab Athena with her own body. (laughs) And so they're both stabbed in this one food processor, which leads to a fun conversation because they talk about Don, and like it's never actually established. At any point, is there a guaranteed answer about what side Don was on? Whether or not he was a plant, yeah. (laughs) You have no idea. No idea if he's a plant or not. I... Um, again, I think Athena was probably the smartest of that group. If you want to call her smart or not, that's beside the point. She's the smartest of that group. And I feel that Don would not have been able to handle his own and been that competent. So I think he was actually... He wouldn't have let her kill all his friends if he was right, a plant. exactly. No. Yeah, I don't think he was ever actually a plant. But it, this is the, like, the thing in the movie that bothered me the most, oddly enough, was she gets the food processor in her and what's her face says i you know i got you and then she hugs her and kills her with it it's the same wound yes they both have the same wound and betty gilpin's like yeah this is nothing (laughs) (laughs) it's the exact same thing happened to both of you (laughs) very fair point it's funny because the only other thing like that that bothered me is when betty gilpin hits tears of the sun like solidly in the jaw with a metal pipe and then he talks later. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh-uh. Unless his bones are adamantium or made out of the shit that they made. If they made the doors in Belko Experiment out of whatever the shit in this guy's jaw was, that would have made sense. But otherwise, uh-uh. Nope. 
<laughs> but yeah, and then they have that the conversation. Yeah, they have that conversation. Athena does not survive the identical wound, as Jake mentioned. So she dies. You find out she doesn't understand Animal Farm even a little bit. Yeah, which discredits Nick's theory of her actually being smart. So She's not smart. She's just good at making grilled cheese. Yeah. <laughs> they also bring up the questions like it's not 100% guaranteed, but like one of Athena's last questions is, did I get the right crystal? And Crystal's like, nope. And I honestly don't know if that's the truth or who's just fucking with her. But <laughs> there's, I mean, there's plenty of signs. Like they explain who their original crystal is mm-hmm. and all about her. And most of that doesn't involve Afghanistan. So that's true. I mean, you know, it's possible Betty Gilpin's lying, but the movie isn't that smart and that deep. So it doesn't. <laughs> but the other thing is, is it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't. And to wrap up real quick. Crystal is reeling from her wound, sees a rabbit has made its way into the kitchen, which (laughs) she gives it a bit of a look. We then cut to Crystal, who is now upright, cauterizing her wound with a kitchen blowtorch. And she then dresses up in one of the nicer... She also, and this is another thing I liked about the movie, she eats the hell out of that grilled cheese sandwich. Oh yeah, I can't believe I left that out. (laughs) It always annoys me in movies when they spend a lot of time cooking good food and then nobody eats it. So for her eating that grilled cheese sandwich was like, that almost made the movie for me. (laughs) They also had the callback with the champagne, which I kind of like. Yeah, she takes the champagne that was found on like a sunken ship. It's incredibly rare and special. Yeah, the opening sequence on the plane with the douchebag character, he's asking for champagne. Richard, yeah. Yeah, Richard. He's asking the flight attendant if it is the 1907 Heidsick, which was apparently this lost vintage, which now there were three bottles that were purchased by Athena at $250,000 a pop. So, which is not the champagne that is on the plane in the opening, but it is in fact the champagne that Athena had on ice to go with her Gruyere sandwich. Which is funny because at one part in the fight, she actually dives to save it when he gets knocked off the table. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't get knocked. Betty Gilpin throws it at her. Yeah, yeah. Crystal dresses up in one of Athena's dresses, grabs the sick. Hops onto her plane. We meet the same flight attendant. Grabs the dog, too. Oh, yeah, grabs the dog, too. She gets the champagne to the dog. Hops onto the same plane we saw at the opening, runs into the same flight attendant, and they have a conversation about, you know, oh, take me home, and the plane takes off. And you see that Crystal has a much more pleasant exchange with the flight attendant than the douchebag did earlier in the movie. Has her take a seat so they can drink this you know, high tech together. They have this like almost similar conversation about caviar, except that she's immediately like, well, have some, you know, <laughs> let's share this. Mm-hmm. Enjoy it with me. And she takes a slug of the high tech and the flight attendant asks her, how is it? And Crystal says, it's really fucking good. It's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> and then cut to black. <laughs> and that's the hunt. Well, thank so you for I listening to this it. episode of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While a stupider film, it was a better film. Ah, more entertaining. While a stupider film was a more entertaining film than Belko, in my opinion. I absolutely enjoyed it more than Belko Experiment. Yes. I don't know that it's a better film. I think Belko Experiment's better made and better written and all that. I just, it's just not my taste. Which this one technically really isn't either. But I, Betty Gilpin is entertaining enough. I actually like this movie. Yeah. It's not good. Don't get me wrong. I would never recommend it oh, to no, anybody it's, it's ever. It's got some serious stupid going on. But I, I watched <laughs> it twice, and it's just kind of fun, stupid nonsense. Yeah. The politics of it are juvenile to the point of absurdity, and the fact that this got controversy enough that the president talked about it 
is absurd. Anybody who got upset about it had no concept of what the actual content was. Right. It's just too stupid to get upset about with its South Park politics. But on the whole, it's kind of an entertaining enough movie. It's be fair, but it wasn't. I mean, there wasn't anything about it that I found particularly loathsome or terrible. It's just, uh, it was a late night fun kind of romp with one or two jokes that land and enough. Not a handful, but still, yeah. Goofy violence to keep you going. The pacing's fine. It's the kind of movie that you come across it late at night and it's on. You're like, yeah, I'll watch this. You're not going to be overly disappointed, but I wouldn't personally go seeking it. Yeah. So this movie was written by, like we mentioned, it was written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse, who I haven't seen The Leftovers. I know Jake's a fan, and yes. I know it's it's certainly critically well-reviewed. But they also wrote Watchmen, or many of the episodes of Watchmen. And I've seen varying opinions on Watchmen, but I think most folks would agree that Watchmen is more politically intriguing and well thought through than most folks expected before it aired. Like when everyone yes. saw that first episode, oh, this is a lot more thought put into this than I was expecting. There's a lot more nuance to this. You can argue the politics, but they're at least there. There to argue. This for, like, if we're talking about these particular films, so I'll be the outlier here. I think the Belco experiment, I, I'm not fond of either of these movies, but the Belco experiment is better at what it's trying to be. Yes. It better accomplishes what it wants. Whether or not what it is is a good thing, I'm not, again, I'm not crazy about it. But for the hunt, it's very much trying to be, it's like, yeah, we're going to be silly and it's going to be taking on all comers and we're going to make fun of, you know, everybody equally. And it's just a bunch of shit. And I don't mean that it's <laughs> shit isn't being yeah. terrible. It's, it's right. just stuff. Yeah. And it's just thrown together. You're not coming off as nuanced you're not coming off as you know we're making fun of all sides here it's just coming off as smug and it's coming off as dumb smug and in the end it's like well who did you help in making this who benefits from this (laughs) (laughs) it's south park i mean that's what i think every time i see a south park episode is what was the point of this shit you're just smug smug is the right word it's mockery i'm with you on this eric for me it's it's movie 43 but it doesn't land a single punch like, movie 43 <laughs> is completely irreverent and a beautiful movie, but it lands every single fuck, or almost every punch it tries. This movie's... I, hold on. We, we have to pause. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Beautiful? Wait, we have to pause for Be- a minute. Beautiful. Because Fred just referred to movie 43 as a beautiful movie. It is! Oh and God. I just think we need to let that sink in for us and our audience for a moment. And if you haven't seen movie 43, you should. Maybe. <laughs> probably not (laughs) it can be said it can be said when i think this is a guaranteed fact that every skit in movie 43 has one solid gold (laughs) nugget of dear fucking god that's hilarious (laughs) but on the whole it's a what the fuck did i just see movie now i would say that movie 43 is probably the movie that nick and i when we get together quote more than anything else even more than like The Simpsons and other things we should be quoting. Oh, which... so this is what a dead man sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> foot, foot and a half. <laughs> okay, back up. We gotta back up. <laughs> we could actually do this all night. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we pull out, pull back. It's over. You stop. <laughs> but, but the point but... being that it's never in the history of anything been described as a beautiful movie until Fred just did right there. 
and I just I just feel like it's important to acknowledge that 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 happened before moving on. Like like I I'm wearing a hat. I feel like I should take it off and bow my head for a minute. Like moment of silence for moviedom for movie forty three being described as beautiful. So in the scary stuff parallel universe, my Kelty Williamson won best actor for Species Two, and movie forty three won best picture. In the scary verse, movie forty three is Magnolia. Okay. Yes. So you were trying to make a point there, Fred, before we just lost our minds. Oh, oh yes. My, my point essentially is that this movie, like he said, it's just throwing shit at the wall and it doesn't have a point to why it's doing it. And, you know, you can be irreverent, but there has to be something behind it. Otherwise, you're just being irreverent. And for that reason, I really, I couldn't get into it. I would rather watch uh, Ready or Not, right? I don't know if you guys have seen that yet. If you haven't. Not yet. Ready or Not's really good. I've seen enough of it. I haven't seen the ending, though. Oh, you got to finish that movie. But yeah, it's essentially this only done well. It's rich people trying to murder somebody, and it's done amazingly well. Yeah, no, like like I keep saying, this is like South Park, where the only way to win is to be smug about it. It's basically saying everybody's stupid, and the only person who's not stupid is the person who doesn't engage in any kind of politics or have an opinion or do anything other than just walk through the movie. Yeah. And that's that's always the point of South Park is that everybody's dumb, be smug about it. And it's Yep. Without getting too much into the overall of that, that's what the movie is. I'm not a fan of that kind of thing. I think it's it's stupid. It's juvenile. But again, I like this movie just because it's it's fun. Kind of silly fun. It had some solid moments. And I will say for reference for the the South Park bit, I think the intention here was to more so come off as self-deprecating than it was the ironic detachment from everything that South Park does, where you can make fun of all sides because we feel removed from it to a degree. Obviously, if you've seen Watchmen, you can infer that Lindelof and Nick Cuse have a certain set of politics, probably. So I think it was intended to just be more overtly self-deprecating while also being, you know, commentary. But when there's no nuance to it, when you're just throwing doofy shit at the wall and just piling it in is like, well... It's just cartoons. If you're really funny, that's one thing. But I didn't find it. It made me laugh a couple times, but not that often. So it's like, well, again, so who benefits in, in the end? So, but yeah, that's that's the hunt. I can't wait for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me it's a joke. Are they actually working on a sequel? No. Oh, thank God. It didn't make any money. It was well, released no. right before COVID after getting delayed twice. It's not getting a sequel. You never know. You never know. I mean, I understand it's in the Bloomhouse model, and it doesn't take much. Fourteen million was the budget. Yeah, but this didn't come anywhere close, and I there'd be no point. Like, what would the sequel be? You know, that would continue the kind of nonsense this was in. But again, I just didn't hate it. I expected to not like it, and I really just kind of I find it very inoffensively goofy. I guess. And I like Betty Gilpin. I think that helps a lot. She is by far the best part of the movie by a country mile. Yeah. She is legitimately terrific in this. And it's just funny watching these with their juvenile, stupid, barely their politics that were such a big part of why we even knew the name of the movie for the most part and for certainly for most of the country versus, you know, after we just did The Purge, which has surprisingly smart and interesting political depth to it and actually has things to say about systemic racism and 
yep. classicism and all this because you wouldn't expect it from the purge and that's why when i talked about it in the intro is that these movies are what everybody thinks the purge is yeah and it's one thing i would since you bring up the purge specifically it's one thing i forgot to mention which is despite my not being crazy about the hunt who knows what'll happen with age and it's one of the things i'm curious about like because we just did the purge and it turns out those movies age better than you would expect so it's fair to say with something that is as politically charged as the hunt who knows given you know a few years what the perspective on it will be they said pretty negative now but you know i never thought i would consider the purge films would age as well as they do agreed well considering the zoomer generation's detachment from the people before them and the kind of loathing and hatred for boomer and gen x and whatever politics this could end up being a classic <laughs> I mean, Fred, Nick, you both have kids. In ten years, they could be writing theses on this shit. This is what my parents were like. <laughs> <laughs> so, between the purge and this, what politically charged franchise are we going to dig up for our next episode? <laughs> <laughs> There's not that many political oriented horror movies, really, that I can think of. Well, if we find them, we'll do them here. I feel like we now have to do a bonus episode on movie 43 just because. (laughs) (laughs) Scary stuff. The not scary stuff episode. (laughs) There's a couple, there's scary leprechauns in it and you can't tell me you're not terrified by the couple with the mop girlfriend. And it features a skit written by James Gunn who worked on the Belko experience. (laughs) Wait, which one? The animated cat one is James Gunn. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. The one with Elizabeth Banks, yeah. That is 100% his wheelhouse. Yes. That That is definitely James Gunn's oeuvre. Wow. <laughs> we, we need to go back and watch Tromeo and Juliet. That'll work. <laughs> we really don't. We absolutely do not. There's no reason for that. Oh, oh, no. We got to do a Terra Firmer episode. Oh, God, I don't know it. It's awful. Trauma? Yeah, it's very much trauma. <laughs> It is so trauma. Oh. Eventually, we're going to do a trauma episode, and Nick and I aren't going to speak to each other for a week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to bank a lot of podcasts in advance so we can release them after. <laughs> it's just going to be me going, and here are the parts of this I thought were fun and had a good time. And it's going to be Jake responding with, like, drooling, and his head just kind of falling <laughs> into the mic. <laughs> I'm just going to be speaking in the fucking cricket sounds from the grudge by the end of the podcast. <laughs> Moving in jerking motions as I leave the studio. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think these were a good pairing of movies. It made for an interesting double feature of schlocky murdering people, murdering people. We got to get back to some supernatural shit, though. After four Purge movies in this, it's like, all right. <laughs> I need a fucking ghost in my life. <laughs> Well, trust me, I got some episode ideas. I think that will fulfill that criteria, if not also break you at the same time. I do not trust you. I will never (laughs) trust you again after we started this podcast. (laughs) As I said in our Bourne episode, I used to like most of the movies I watched until I started watching movies that you guys made me watch. But I think that will do it for our latest bonus episode. And a big thanks to Fred for coming back for another episode. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Fred. You're welcome. Thank you for having me again. Hope you enjoyed being on the podcast with us. Even if I didn't enjoy these movies as much as the uh, Purge movies. <laughs> no, but you love movie 43, and that makes up for it. <laughs> it's beautiful. It it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. It is a beautiful, a beautiful, it is a beautiful film. <laughs> <laughs>
everybody else sees movie 43 finishes up by saying, my God, it's full of stars. And Fred's like, beautiful. So that'll do it for this bonus episode. So I'm Eric, and thank you for listening. This is Nick. Thank you so much. I'm Jake. Thank you for enjoying these movies with us. And I'm Fred. Fred, say something. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, folks. Good night. See you soon. Good night. Good night.